Got Robert here, Mentors for Military. Thanks for tuning in again. We're at 15 Perry Street coming at you with my sidekick, Paul Martinez. Hey, what's going on? And if you like the show, love the content, want to help us out, you can go out to patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L, and help support the podcast however you like and uh, help us bring great content and great guests to you. So we're also joined by a co-host today. And uh, Don has been on the episode probably now. This will be your third one now, I think. That's uh, right. Yes, yeah. sir. So uh, if you go back a few episodes, you'll hear uh, Don Dorman, and uh, he helped us out with an additional podcast. And so now he gets to play the role of co-host. It's always fun when you get to sit on the microphone, and it's not the spotlight is not on you. So yeah, I feel way less intimidated already. <laughs> nice. So we have a guest, uh, Nick. Nick Lavery, you are still on active duty. So we can talk about that, right? We can. Okay, good. Cool. Yeah. So Nick uh, hails from originally from Boston, Massachusetts. Correct. And and you're going to definitely be able to tell that through the voice once you get to talking a little Probably. bit Probably, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, was your family always from uh, Boston, or did they move there, and then that's where you kind of grew up? Or what's the story there? Because, like, for me, I was a Navy brat. So we ended up moving all over the place and ended up landing at one particular point. So always been Massachusetts area for family uh yeah, always been Massachusetts, uh, both sets of family, grandparents on my mother's side came over from Sicily and went straight to Boston, and then same with my father's side uh, from Ireland straight to I was going to say, Lavery is definitely... Irish. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so in the city, and then I really, I moved around a lot as a kid. I moved every about 12 to 18 months. So in the city, north of Boston, south of Boston... Okay. I moved around quite a bit. Because of your parents' employment type of thing? Or? Yeah, mostly. Yep. Yeah. So you ended up going to high school there, uh, then ended up going to UMass. Yeah, went to high school uh, in Dorchester, uh, private school, Boston College High School, which I went to primarily because of their athletic program that yeah. they had. So I managed to get myself in there. Um, what year? I, was, I graduated in 2000. Okay. I'm trying to think of who was the coach then? Jim Carter. Okay. Yep. Who was also the athletic director. Um, amazing dude. Died a few years back. And then from there, I went to UMass Lowell, which is north of Boston, and played ball up there. Okay. Now, what, you were linebacker. In college, I was an outside linebacker. Yep. What were you in high school? I was a strong safety in high school. Really? Yeah. I was what they call a late bloomer. Right. Okay. So I hit puberty real late in life, <laughs> which came with its own set of struggles. Right? <laughs> I still had the squeaky voice. All my buddies started getting facial hair. Yeah. And I'm like this little mouse running around. So people that don't believe me when I talk about it because they're looking at me. But right. I, was, I was tiny right through high school. I wrestled at 123 my freshman year of high school. What? Wait, Smurfs. you're like 6'5". So 123 on a 6'5 build? No, yeah. I wasn't 6'5". Oh, yeah, okay. that's really the point. So I was <laughs> short and small, and I was fast and athletic. So I was yeah. always a defensive back. And I started getting looked at my junior year by, by coaches and scouts. And in between my junior and senior year of high school is when yeah. I finally hit my growth spurt. And I grew like seven inches over one summer. Holy cow. So I'm all tall and gangly <laughs> yeah. and awkward and I can't control my body. Like I'm just a mess. <laughs> so I, I, I still stayed in the same position, but the same scouts were coming back my senior year. And they're like, who is this tall, lanky, weird And what kid? are you feeding him? Yeah. Like, what do we do with you? You know, because <laughs> yeah. you went from like, um, you know, five something to like six, two. Yeah. Over the course of a few months. 
So uh, they still had their interest in me, but they knew they were going to have to spend a year or two stacking on some weight, stacking right. on some muscle to fill out my frame yeah. and move me to linebacker. So ah, that's what happened. So um, they like put you on a full program, you know, the diet type of thing, but more of like, let's beef you up, muscle mass. Yeah, my first two years of college, um, you know, I got a little plenty of time, but it was mostly spent in the gym and a lot of time with nutritionists. I had a, a nutrition regimen that I followed, so... I'd yeah. show up to the cafeteria and I'd get X, Y, and Z. And that's redshirted really, the first year? Is that did they redshirt? No, you? I didn't redshirt because um, I did play a little bit. It was it was a newish program, um, so I still got some playing time. So I didn't redshirt, and uh, that was really where I my education into nutrition and fitness and training oh, really no began. You yeah. know, and I really that's where I kind of fell in love with it. And obviously, like, I've continued it through this you know to the to this day. Where'd you end up getting the, your degree in that? Criminology. Yeah, so I thought that uh, so so which that's a far departure from nutrition because you could have <laughs> right. if you loved it that much you could have gone into sports uh, what is it sports medicine nutrition sports nutrition yeah so something like that I actually began my college career as a business management major which I just kind of picked out of a hat yeah. I only went to college to play football yeah right other if I hadn't gone to play football. I would have joined the Marine Corps at high school. That, would, Marines. that was the plan. What, what, what was the, about the Marines? Because Don's a Marine, but I know that just, what was the? Phenomenal marketing. Yeah. <laughs> it is. they still True. have today. They have great yeah. marketing. The greatest marketing yeah. of all the branches. Yeah. The pretty awesome uniform, too. Slay the dragon. Yeah. It gets everybody. That's commercial. <laughs> that, that, that <laughs> big, literally. The big lava monster with the sword. <laughs> yeah. That, you guys just answered your yeah, own question. That, was that, that is time. exactly why. They were the baddest dudes around. Yeah. And I wanted to be one. You know, so that was my goal. I think sophomore year, high school, I skipped class, went and met with a recruiter. He's like, cool, graduate, and then come back, and we'll get you in. I said, great. Okay. That was the plan. And then I started getting recruited to play ball, which is the only reason why I went to college. Yeah. So I picked business management out of a hat because I didn't care. I was not an academic whatsoever yeah. back then. And uh, freshman year, I walked into calculus, which was a requirement for that major. <laughs> and I was in that class all about yeah. 20 seconds, and I'm like, yeah, <laughs> negative. I got up and left. Went to my advisor and said, get me out of calculus. He said, here are your options on what you can major in. And criminology was one of them. And I said, cool, that sounds good. Let's yeah. do that. Yeah. That See, that. normally, guys, it's the opposite, right? You come off active duty or while you're on active duty, you decide to get an associate's degree or a bachelor's in criminology for hopes of when you get off active duty, you know, you can go into criminology. You, know, you can go into, like you, go into law enforcement and stuff. Right. But going into it, it was a very interesting story, I think. You know, for choosing criminology. Had, did you have ever have any ambition or still do of going into law enforcement? No, not really. <laughs> it was just to get yeah. the degree, right? Literally, it was to not be in calculus yeah. <laughs> and have something to study. It was yeah. like a class list. You could, like, I could pass these classes and play football. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I started taking electives in nutrition and psychology, which is really what I began to enjoy. I think yeah. I was one class shy of a minor in psych okay. because I started to actually really enjoy that, which is why I'm, I'm about halfway through the pursuit of my master's in psychology right now. Oh, no lie. So okay. the criminology thing just yeah. kind of happened. Yeah. But through the journey, I actually found some areas of study that I do enjoy and I pursue now, you know. Yeah. No, I, I've seen a lot of, if you follow, you know, a lot of college football and everything, and you see these guys that, you know, it's quite fascinating nowadays. They they get recruited. They may or may not be filling out that position, but they have a lot of the basic qualities. So then what they do is they redshirt them, and they next thing you know, you see them come out three months later from graduating high school, and you see them for fall ball, and you're like, this guy put on like 30 pounds of mass, yeah. you know, yeah. how do they do that? You know, what do they give him thinking roids or something that quick? Right. Right. You really just, you just started to actually grow. 
I blame my father because my birthday is September 1st. So I fall right in that window when school starts. So they actually pushed me early. So I graduated oh. high school at 17. I started yeah. college at 17. If he had put me in where I was kind of in my norm, normal age group, yeah. I would have had that extra year to develop and to grow. So I blame him that I'm not playing on Sundays right now. <laughs> That's funny. That's it. it was his fault. So how long did you stay uh, there before you end up leaving? A couple stay of years where? at Boston, at UMass. Oh, I was in school. It took me, what, five and a half years to graduate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my sophomore year was 9-11 which most of us that were old enough to know where they were, don't, you know, it's a moment you don't forget. It's no different for me. I'm walking to class, which was kind of rare for me, but I'm going and all the students are are walking back kind of towards the dorm. And I'm like, what's going on? Like all the classes have been canceled today. I'm like, perfect. And I'm celebrating. Right. Hell yeah. So I head back to my room. I'm trying to plan out how I'm going to just waste a day away and uh, flip on the TV. Of course, everything's on the same, the same channel. And uh, in that moment, I'm like, yeah, I'm done with school. I am enlisting into the military like tomorrow. Right. Because I, I kind of see, I saw where things were going. I yeah. knew we were going to be getting vengeance on what had happened, and I wanted to be a part of that. So I'm like, and, here and we you go. And you already wanted to be a Marine. I so, did. Yeah, right? so. It was in the back of my mind yep. as something to do post-college anyway. Yeah. That was just, that was the tipping point for me, and uh, I was committed to that. Ended up listening to some family and some mentors and some advisors, and I did stay in, grinded out the degree, which was challenging. I'm glad I did, you know, in retrospect. And then immediately after that was when I started looking at options to enlist. But you never thought about, like, going ROTC or anything like that there at the university? I did not. Any reason why? I, I was just, it was all football for me. Yeah. It was all athletics yeah. and... You know, I got caught up in the social scene, which was fun, you know. So I went to college to play football and have fun. Yeah. You know, and and I did that. And that's why it took me so long to earn the degree. I was going to say that. (laughs) Right? That's why, you know, they call guys that go to school for five or six years doctors. And in my case, it's not not the case, right? (laughs) It's this random criminology bachelor's degree that really doesn't mean anything. I love it. So when you got out and you got done, what, what was next? Got out, got done. Started looking at options to enlist right no, away. No interest in the NFL scouts or anything like that. Uh, no, nah, what was the reason why? Because I mean, just not the size and the build. Yeah, or? just I didn't have I didn't have the skill and have the size. So the I just I just didn't have what it took. Yeah. Um, so the military became the uh, the option very very quickly right after. And, you know, I knew I wanted to go into soft. I felt like that was where I could make the most impact. How did you know that? What what caused that? Because typically it's funny when I, you know, it's a movie or something. That What was it? Probably a movie. Um, you know, the Navy SEALs is becomes very quickly what is yeah. recognized as like what the, the most was elite badasses in the world. It was called Navy SEALs. Was it was yeah, it that with Charlie, Charlie Sheen? Sheen. Yeah, it's called Navy SEALs. Yeah. Yeah. Could have been I don't remember a specific movie or reference that drew me there, but the SEALs was what was on the top of my mind, right? Right. Marines, SEALs. Yep, yep. It's good marketing, though. They have, great, they have good marketing. They do, it's, yeah. and they still do. Yeah. You know, it's fantastic. So I walk into a recruiter station, and there's three branches in the same building. They got the Navy, the Marines, and the Army. They're all in the same hallway, right? So I walk into the Navy office first, and I said, hey, man, I, I just graduated college. I want to be a SEAL. He's like, awesome. You have to enlist in the Navy, and then you could request to go to Bud's and do that thing. Yeah. There wasn't an option to come in straight off the street, although now they've got something where you yeah. can do that. I said, great, thanks. I'll be right back. I went down and talked <laughs> to the Marines. Yeah. 
got the same response. And then I went and talked to the Army, and I got a different response. And the Army's like, hey, we've got this program referred to as the 18 X-ray contract, right. Special Forces Recruit, which gives guys off the street the chance to go straight into the SF pipeline and basically bypass the conventional Army. I said, okay, cool. Let me go uh, do some homework, which I did. And I, did, I had heard of Green Berets and Army Special Forces, but I didn't know much about it. I don't come from a military family. Yeah. Google, boom, I started learning about it. And not only did that option give me the fastest route to get to soft, but it was what I think I was drawn to most anyway. You know, unconventional warfare is a sexy term, right? right? And it's yeah. also super broad. And even if you just talk the unclassified version, there's a million things within that. Right. And I'm dissecting it, and it just sounded it just sounded cool. And really, the wide range of mission sets that SF ODAs are expected to execute um, enticed me. So. The reason why I bypassed going in as an officer is because it doesn't option doesn't exist for officers, mm, right? right? If you want to be an officer, you got to come in and then go through the officer pipeline and then go spend time in the conventional side. If you're lucky, you can come in, yeah, right? If you're yeah. lucky, there's a slot available or whatever. Yeah, right. Much much different. Right. So the enlisted option was the route because I got that contract, and then I still had this kind of I say somewhat warped perception of what officers do versus what enlisted guys do, right? Like, I wanted to be a worker. Is it really warped? It's slightly. Like, <laughs> in SF, it certainly is. Like, at least yeah. on the team, right? Like, yeah. the captain on the team does everything else that the guys on the team do to, a, to, to the, for the most part. Officers still are the ones that are giving orders, and enlisted guys are the ones that are executing. Right. So I wanted to be the guy getting my hands dirty and doing the work, so the, the enlisted route was the obvious route for me to take so you get 18 x-ray you end up here at fort benning i'm assuming to start off basic infantry training yep and how many were in the the uh, class with you there were 18 x-ray was it one of those that was like the majority were 18 x-rays or was it one of those where you just happened to be splattered in there no there was a good amount i say it was probably like 25 percent were, oh, were x-rays okay. in my basic training class something like that good amount some of them i still i still keep in touch with today but yeah, I was straight to OSIT at Benning for 16 weeks, and then from there straight to Airborne, you know, right down the street, also yep. down here, and then that's when I went to Bragg and got it, got prepped for uh, selection. Yeah, so you went to pre-selection prior. I went to pre-selection, uh, which at the time was a five-week program, mm. and oh, wow. you would go down to McCall from Bragg on Monday morning, and you would stay there Monday through Friday, and then you'd come back to Bragg on the weekends. And it was nothing but just PT, some land nav, SF history, classes, not tying, like yeah. whatever, the stuff you need to do to be successful at selection. At the end of the fifth day, the cadre come and they say, hey, this upcoming selection class that starts next week is miss is short, like 15 or 20 dudes. So we're taking the top 10% performers here and sending you guys to selection early. And uh, when I was like, cool, I, I was ready to go. I'm yeah, like, yeah. cool, that's just four less weeks of this bullshit yeah. that I'm doing now. So like, let's get the, let's get the game going. <laughs> so I did go to pre-selection five days worth. And then that following Monday, I was in SFAS. Yeah. Were you worried at all about just, you know, walking in there and maybe not being selected because you didn't get the opportunity to get the full, you know, gamut? <laughs> My confidence was real high, man. I mean, everyone goes into selection yeah. like nervous and scared and like what's going to happen and what's going to happen if I don't make it? What happens if I get hurt? Like the, the nerves are there. Yeah. But I I've been through everything like back to back to back, rucking and running and land navin 
and I'm, I just I was ready to well, go. Physically, that must not have been very challenging for. I mean, it's obviously challenging to do, but compared to, you know, playing football, like your physical conditioning, you probably were ready. Yeah, I right felt, out of the game. I felt totally ready. Did, yeah. did you feel like? No. Well, I was going to ask you a different question because did you feel like if you were already in really good shape? I've heard this before. People go off the basic training, and they actually lose muscle mass. Oh yeah. Because they're just not exercising their well, muscles in the same way. A guy your size. Yeah, who constantly lifts, you know. Yeah, so my, my physical journey quickly is I got done playing my four years of football, but I still another year and a half, two years of school. So mm -hmm. I transitioned away from football to more strongman powerlifting type stuff. I oh, just wanted to see okay. how big and strong I could get. Yeah. I was doing personal security and VIP security downtown Boston, bouncing nightclub stuff. So being really big. Yeah was advantageous for me, right? People wanted big muscle dudes around to do all that stuff, which is what I did. So I got up to like 305 pounds. Holy I mean, I was massive, geez. right? So I'm flipping tires and doing <laughs> log lifts. And that's what was my training all the way up until I decided I was going to enlist. CrossFit or just like, just nothing but full on like? Um, Strongman powerlifting. And then I did some boxing just to kind of keep up my cardio a little bit. In Boston. So you got to do boxing, right? You didn't need to. Yeah. yeah, I need to. So I was at my biggest when I graduated college and then decided I was going to enlist in the military. So I yeah. put together myself and my coach about a 16 week program and I sliced down to like 240, right? Wow. Which is still relatively what, big. What was, big. The, what was your like, max for your height? When you came in, do you remember? To the military? Like, yeah. I was at 240. My first day of basic training. No, but what was your max for your height for the Army? Like the, Oh, the, I was a weight before. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's considered morbidly obese. Oh, was you? At 240. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah. it was like 218 or something crazy. Oh, my yeah. God. Right? That's so what I was, I was wondering, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was considered morbidly obese. And then Did I, they tape you or anything? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. And I've got visible abs. So, yeah. like, the cadre and the <laughs> drill sergeants are, like, taping me. And they're like, this is kind of silly. You know, but, like, <laughs> this is what we have to do. It's all about the neck, right? How good does yeah. it feel, though, when you have to get taped and you're fucking jacked and beautiful and you got abs? <laughs> and everybody else is fat and they ask you to take off your shirt and you're like, this body's not good enough for the United States Army. I used to love that when I, you'd go to a big army school and they're like, I don't we know gotta that take you, Ranger. Yeah. I'm like, all right. Yeah. It's one of those I'm gonna make a bunch of people feel bad. Right. All right. <laughs> like everyone's rolling their eyes at this. Yeah. We're just, exactly. we're just gonna do it anyway. And the fat boys are trying to flex their necks so they can get a yeah. right, get a better tape. So I was I mean, I was in phenomenal physical shape because I yeah. had cut down like sixty plus pounds and I was fast and lean. Started basic at two two forty five. When I finished basic, I was down to I don't know two fifteen maybe wow. two twenty. You know, just yeah. the calories aren't yeah. there. You know, yeah. yeah. I have a real fast metabolism. I need to be eating, and they just don't feed you enough. You know? Yeah, so but the all these guys food. go through so much stuff to get ready for selection. You know, so that's why I was curious as to with all that weight loss. I mean, geez, you're just now talking 80, 90 pounds that you just lost. Yeah, over the course of you know four months, five months, yeah. a third of your a third of your body. Weight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was rapid, but so I lo I lost some strength and size, but I was in great military shape. Like yeah. I could run for days, yeah, and I could ruck for days, and I could do all the body weight stuff, the push ups, the pull ups, and that's really so no lethargy or anything. You were still good. You, you know, no not being tired or nothing like that. Then no. losing that much. Okay, no nah, man, my my endurance was was through the roof because I was already running. You know, a sub twelve or around a twelve-minute two mile at two forty-five. Yeah. yeah. So then I take off twenty pounds, and I'm just like a friggin' well, I'm like lightning, right? So I'm yeah. moving out quick. So I'm moving fast. I can go for days. My endurance is crazy through the roof. Mm -hmm. Rucksack feels like a knapsack. 
So I, like selection couldn't come fast enough for me. Yeah. yeah. So how was selection when you finally got there? <sighs> you know, it, it was challenging, but yeah. it really, in retrospect, it wasn't even the most difficult part of the, of the Q course. You know, it's, when I went, it was two weeks long. You know, if it was 14 okay. or 15 days. And um, the, the team events is what got me the most. That was what was most challenging for me. I've heard that a lot. Yeah. You know, and it's not so much the physical side. It's, it's, the, it's the leadership. Mm-hmm. And then being able, being able to lead and then being able to follow a leader. Because they rotate, you know, who's in these leadership positions to evaluate yeah. you during this, these events. It's almost the whole point of it. Right. Um, so for re- you coming out of football, though, you, you're used to team and usually team captains and stuff like that, defense, team, team captains, offense. I mean, you didn't feel too uncomfortable in that situation, right? I felt great leading. I felt, I felt a challenge following a leader. Yeah. 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 Like type A, confident in my decision-making and my analysis <laughs> process. And I'd just, never get that. Be like, from, yeah. What you just said we're going to do is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a horrible idea. You know what I mean? And the cadre are looking at that. They're yeah. like, hey, man, like, you want to be able to input your opinion and make this a team event. But what the, what the guy in charge says is what you need to follow. You need to support that. That was a struggle. <laughs> so for me, it, that, it was more that than anything really physical yeah. through selection. Yeah. No, the worst part, too, though, is the guys that you built a relationship with through OSIT, you didn't get a chance to transition into selection. So you would have at least known some of these guys. You didn't know any of these guys, right? There was maybe another six or seven that, oh, okay. that they pulled did go with from, from SOPSI, from pre-selection, gotcha. that okay. I was in selection with. Yeah. yeah so, so I added like the 320-some-odd dudes that were there. I knew maybe six or seven. How um, many of them washed out in the first two weeks in SFAS? <sighs> I don't remember the timeline. I know we ended up ended up with about seventy dudes total at the end that washed out or at that, the end that of got state. selected. Yeah, okay. I had like three. It was like we started with three hundred and twenty, three hundred and thirty, yeah. and we ended up with seventy at the end. How I, many? How many of the guys that you went through OSET in the whole bit? All of my guys uh, that I was there with. Yeah, all the guys that were in pre-selection with me. Yeah, all got selected. Oh, yeah. nice. X-rays tend to do very well in selection, mostly because they're in such great physical shape. Right. Like the guys okay. that are coming over from conventional units, some units aren't very considerate about that. You know, they still have all these taskings and these day-to-day things they need to do, and they got to train on the side yep. to try to get themselves ready for selection. Whereas us, all we did was get ready for selection. That was like our whole purpose in life was right. to get ready for that. So experience, obviously, completely lacking. Like there's zero a blank canvas in terms of army stuff, military stuff. Uh, but our physicality is what would drive us through selection. Yeah, plus you don't have any injuries. You, know? you spend a couple couple years in the 82nd, like it's easy to pile on a few injuries that will slow course. you down. Yeah. You know? and it's just one more thing you got to grind through. Yeah, 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 absolutely. What was uh, Q? Any challenges there? Language, school, anything? Language was tough. Yeah. Yeah, I went to the Q course as a Russian speaker. Um you know, I feel like the artistic side of the brain is also where the language capability exists. So if you're an artist or a musician, mm-hmm. you can be good at language. My wife is a great example of that. She's a, she's a musician, she plays the piano, she's got paintings, she's, a, she's phenomenal at foreign language. She speaks like six or seven of them. 
mine mine was a complete and total slugfest <laughs> where I just grinded through for six months. Mom didn't teach you Italian or anything uh, growing up? Where it would have been an easier transition? or My grandparents taught me a little Italian, but Italian wasn't a language choice yeah. for us. Right. Um, and I didn't choose my language. I requested to go to third group, which was at Fort Bragg, which is at Fort Bragg. Mm -hmm. And that was a language associated with third group, which is why I ended up getting Russian. Um, that was probably the hottest part of the Q course for me, just because it was a classroom environment. I, I enjoyed and excelled at the tactical and the physical yeah. stuff. Six months in the classroom grinding through Russian was, uh, was tough. Yeah, well, no doubt about it. Well, well that's why uh, it's kind of interesting. Well, one, individuals who usually grow up learning another language or hearing another language usually make that transition. That's why I asked you that question. But then secondly, a lot of guys who can't speak or learn a language rather quickly seems to end up getting Spanish. So they get in seventh right. group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they actually, they base it off of, I think it's called the D-Lab, which right. is kind of this random test you take to see it's your defense, aptitude. La uh, defense language aptitude battery. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, D-Lab it is. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't remember the test, but I remember it being like ridiculous. Yeah. And I'm like, this is, this means something, you know? Yeah. My score was like somewhere in the middle but what they did at the end of selection, at least for our class, I don't think I don't know if they still do this, but everyone requests what they want to do. MOS and what was yours? What group? I wanted to be a Bravo, and I wanted to go to yeah. third group. So they would they facilitate as many as they can, right, with their request. But there's only so many that they can do before they got to send guys to the other MOSs and the other groups. So the higher performers in selection would get the the choices that they wanted. So I wanted to be a Bravo. And I want to go to third group, and my D lab score was high enough for me to get Russian, so that's how it kind of played out. Why weapons? The Bravos, I'll still say it's accurate. Certainly, it was back then. Were considered the ass kickers on the team, right? The Bravo course, the MOS phase of the Q course, when everyone goes their separate ways to learn their jobs, the Bravo course was notorious for being like the most hardcore, quote unquote. Well, smoke sessions, very physical, and uh, I was really just drawn to that. I wasn't—I didn't grow up a gun guy, hunting, yeah. shooting, nothing. I was drawn to tactics and being the muscle on the team, you know. And it makes sense because the Bravos really drive training on or off the range. That's really the Bravo section's task. So if you're going to be training a bunch of other SF guys who are all hyper confident and hyper alpha and some of them very cocky, you're going to try to teach these guys something. You're going to try, you have to be the one to be like, what you're yeah. doing is wrong. This is the right way to do it. You need to have a very high degree of confidence yeah. and aggressiveness to be able to do that. So I think that's kind of how the Bravo section kind of got morphed into these like ass kicking, knuckle dragon type dudes. And that's okay. really what drew me to it. What made you choose third group? Um, or at least want to go there. Yeah. Third group owned Afghanistan. Okay. At, at that the time, time frame. Yeah. So yeah. you're you're mostly interested in getting into the getting fight. fight. Kicking I want to get in the fight immediately. Third group owned Afghanistan. Yeah. That's all it, the other groups were going in. Yeah, like yeah. Third, it was definitely third, yeah. But that's the only place that third was going. Yeah. yeah. So that's uh, where the fight was, and I'm like, that's where I want to go. Yeah. Yeah. At, later as time went on, Africa started coming back into play. But yeah, you're right. It was uh, a lot more of being downrange. 
Yeah, their group has a history of just weaseling their ways into where the conflict <laughs> is at, you know? And it's like, they're like the bastard children of SF. That's how third group was created, yeah. right? We're gonna open up third group at Bragg and we're gonna, every other group has to send people to, to fill those slots. Yeah. That's why the third group flash is the four colors the way that it is. Because it okay. became this hybrid. I did not know that. Yeah. Of the existing groups. Okay. So if you're a group commander and you're ordered <clears throat> to send X number of, of your dudes to yeah. this new unit, who are you going to send? Oh, are best. you going to send your studs? You send your favorite guys. <laughs> no. You're going to send these outcasts <laughs> like weirdos, right? Yeah. Or low performers. Yeah. Um, and I'm labeling these guys. But all these misfits, essentially, it's yeah. probably the best way to, to describe it, sure. shows up to third group. And it just kind of turns into this scrappy unit and uh they just ended up kind of finding their way into where the where the conflict was located i mean they even found their way into another fifth group ao just as of recently where i'm like their group is rotating in with us right now like those <laughs> in, uh, are you yeah. serious How they're they close to the flagpole to too though maybe that has a lot to do with it maybe i don't know yeah however they're doing it they've managed to pull it off yeah. impressive yeah so now well i don't want to go too far forward so you get third group Right? Yeah. Out of, out of the schoolhouse and everything. And um, you go right across basically the street because you're at Bragg yep. still. Yep, right down the street. Uh, what was it like coming in? New E5 or did you get pinned six that time frame? I pinned five right after graduation. From Pretty the much the course. standard, yeah. They don't want you walking around with a Green Beret as a specialist. Yeah, so. yeah. It's, it was right away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. how was it walking in the door, New 18 Bravo? <sighs> My first day in group was was interesting. I'm walking through battalion. I don't know. I have no idea like what I'm doing. Right. This right. whole time I've just been this Roger that like student mode for mm -hmm. like over. I mean, you're a still year. basically okay. You might be at this point a PFC or a specialist in the conventional army, and yeah. here you are a sergeant walking in the door. Right. So E5, been in the army now a year and a two years. Or well, you so might be total. a sergeant. Hell, I was a sergeant. You'd be in two a sergeant years. in two years. Yeah. yeah but yeah. you. But you'd also would be a sergeant because you were at a unit mentored by a leader, you know, yeah, maybe to get boarded. team leaders, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. experience and, you know. You've gone so through a team, yeah, team so time leader, everything. It's the yeah. same, but. Our uh, yeah. Yeah, but still, you yeah. Know, two years of schoolhouse experience. Yeah, like no real army experience at all. Yeah. Just yeah. straight student. At this mode. point, you don't know how to do DNC or anything, right? You Not know? much of That's anything. That's why you guys yeah. say, wear your hands in your pockets. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I managed to find my way to S1, which I didn't even know what that meant. Yeah. Right? And get this like sign in <laughs> checklist of all these different yeah. places I need to go. And it's like S4, S6, legal, JAG. I'm like, well, I don't know what any of these means. Yeah. I don't know where any of these people are. I'm aimlessly meandering around battalion headquarters looking for people to give okay, me a stamp great. and whatever. And this dude walks up to me in PTs, older dude, and he's like, hey man, you, you lost? I'm like, yeah, dude, I'm looking for this like S4 thing. He's like, yeah, it's right over there. And he hears me talking and he's like, you from Boston? I said, yeah. <laughs> he's like, I'm from Boston. I'm like, oh, no shit. I have no idea who I'm talking to. We're talking about the Red Sox, the Pats. We're just like bullshitting. He's like, hey man, come check this out. So I follow him into this office and there's all this Red Sox and Patriots, sports stuff all over his office, Boston paraphernalia everywhere. Yeah. We're just kind of shooting the shit. And then I realized that I'm in the battalion commander's office <laughs> and I'm talking to the battalion commander, right? And it dawns on me, I'm like, I think I'm talking to the colonel. Like, okay, so, but like, he's pretty cool. We're just kind of, we're kind of just shooting the shit. So we continue yeah. as such. And then the CSM, who's in the office next to me. Overhears it. Overhears it. And I just hear this bellowing voice, right? Probably my language, but That's who fine. the fuck 
is talking to the BC like buddies from the block and he walks yeah. in the office <laughs> and it's Sergeant Major Spratt, who I'll never forget, who had just left Swick, right, which is where the SFG mm -hmm. course is at and he came back to third group to take a battalion command or battalion CSM. He comes walking in, old school SF guy, right? Big, barrel chested, mustache, doesn't give a fuck. Comes yeah. in and he's just reaming me out, right? And he's like, I recognize you. You're from, you know, you just graduated, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah. And I'm looking over at the battalion commander, like, dude, you want to, like, help me out here? <laughs> yeah. Like, you totally <laughs> no did love. this, man. Yeah. And he's loving it, right? He's just laughing his ass off. You know, so CSM's <laughs> giving it to me, and he's, like, kind of smirking. But he's like, all right, get the hell out of here. Go do your thing. I'm like, okay, cool. Thanks. So now I'm back to me in around battalion. That was That's my, that was my introduction great, man. to group. Yeah, no clue what I'm doing. Yeah. Ripped up by the CSM. BC totally hung me out to dry. And then I finally found my way into uh, into my team room. Right? Yeah. So when you find your way into the team room, did anybody else hear about that story anytime soon? <laughs> no, they eventually heard about it. My yeah. uh, my company sergeant major eventually heard about it. He thought it was hilarious. Um, he was right. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. It's hilarious. You know, and I love sergeant yeah. major Spratt. Was I'm, I'm an all time fan of that guy. He's who's amazing. Um, back then, I'm sure he's, whatever he's doing now is, is equally amazing. But yeah, knocking the team room door. Which is always nerve wracking, you know. You hear like the the correct way to do it, like make sure you show up with a case of beer and blah yeah. blah 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 blah, and keep your mouth shut. And so I'm like, I don't know, I don't know. Am I supposed to just walk into the headquarters with like a case of beer? Like, is that yeah. cool? I, I don't. So I didn't do it. <laughs> I just show up. I knock on the door, and uh, you know, I meet the guys. And I went to uh, I went to a specialized team as my first ODA, right? A team that focused on like scuba team, low visibility operations. Oh. Cool. Right, which is unorthodox for a brand new dude, especially an X-ray, yeah. to go straight to that kind of team. It just was based on the timing. The entire company was just on their way back from Afghanistan, and this team deployed off-cycle from the rest of the company. So it was, I would have been looking at another nine or so months before I got into the fight. This team was set to go in just a few months. So it was mostly based on the timing. Um, so a real senior team. Right, those those types and of teams tend to be senior. Yeah. Right, senior team, tight. And uh, I walk in, brand new, obviously E five, eighteen X ray. I don't know what, what's going on. And the interesting story is, which I didn't find out until we were later on in Afghanistan, was <laughs> the senior Echo on the team, which are the the communications guys. He's kind of this little Napoleonic complex type, angry <laughs> little dude. He had this grand plan of how he was going to haze me. Yeah. On my first day, right? He had all these weird before he exercises saw before he saw me. <laughs> so I walk in the door, right? And, you know, I'm built the way I am. And uh, he, nothing happened. Like, none of that stuff happened. They all ended up giving him shit, you know, obviously immediately yeah. after, like, oh, what, what are you doing, Chris? You know, and he's like, I'm not messing with this dude. Like, I'm 6'6", <laughs> six, six, like, MMA fighter. Like, yeah. I didn't know any of that about him when I was talking about all the hazing. Right, yeah. Right. So it was actually a really chill introduction yeah. to the boys. Very and then, cool. Um, and then it just started, like, drinking from a fire hose, man. Yeah. Oh, I can only imagine. So how long did you end up staying with them training before you end up deploying them? <sighs> I think I was with them four or five months. Oh, um, not very long then. No, it was it was fast and furious. I were they already training for a mission when you walked in the door, kind yeah. of thing? Oh, she. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they were they were already into their train up. I didn't have a senior Bravo on the team, so I was the only weapons guy. Oh wow! And even though you're taught these weapons and optics and lasers and all these cool guy toys in the course, yeah, it's like a fraction of what you actually right. have for equipment on the team. 
So on my third or fourth day, I get, you know, I get into the arms room and my team sergeant's like, all this stuff is yours. So yeah. this is your responsibility to maintain it. And you're the SME on this stuff. What did that feel like at that moment? Now, I know you're a confident dude, but I come was, on. I was scared shitless. Yeah. <laughs> I would imagine so. I'm yeah. like, okay. And of course, I play it off. I'm like, yeah, no problem. You know, I, yeah. I got this. And I start opening these cages. And I'm looking at all these toys. And I'm like, I don't know what any of this stuff is. Yeah. I don't know how to use anything. So I spent night after night, late night, just in the arms room, reading through training manuals, trying to figure out how to use, like, like what's an islet? I don't know what an islet is. Yeah. It's this weird-looking laser thing. Like, what is this? So it was a lot of... Long, late, alone, you know, just studying up on all this equipment, teaching classes to the guys on stuff that they knew way better than me, right? And then just trying to I'm get I'm sure they love that, though. They did, yeah. yeah. I mean, they were all there. You know, yeah. these guys had all been in group for seven, eight, ten years. Yeah. So, I mean, they knew what I was going through. You know I mean? They knew I was busting my ass. Yeah. And I made a ton of mistakes, and they were there to help me. And, you know, next thing you know, we're in Afghanistan. You're, you're the second guy, though. Um, God, it was, um, I think the last time we got together, there was somebody that was on uh, the show. And very similar situation. I want to say that he walked into... Um, I don't think it was a scuba team, but it was something like that. And very similar, you know, he's the young guy, everybody else's senior type of thing and walks in the door and has to kind of prove himself. And you would think in that type of situation, much like yours, tight knit group and all that, here's a young guy. We don't want this young guy kind of thing. Instead, in both situations, these guys embraced you, you know, I'm sure they're going to give you a little bit of hard time, probably sure. some hazing, mm -hmm. whatever, but it's not like it's, you know, they're trying to get rid of you as soon as you walk in the door type of thing either. No, it's, and I think that's the perception, especially as a, as a new SF guy that you're going to walk in. And it's just going to be this like dog pack that just wants you off the team. But it's yeah. actually the complete opposite. Like you get welcomed into the family right away. You got a lot to prove. Right. And you're going to catch some shit, but they want you there. Like they want the bodies. It's, it's their job to get you up to speed on what it's like on that team and SF in general. And now where I'm at today, you know, 14 and a half years later, you know, we just got a couple new dudes on the team. So very quickly, you end up in the yeah. other side of the coin. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it's got to be. I, I always like getting new guys because it's like, OK, here's a blank slate. I can teach him the right way. I can teach him to avoid all the pitfalls I went through. And I can like it's nice having somebody that doesn't know what they're doing because they're malleable. Yeah. You know, it's like this is. If, if you're going to work hard and you're in shape and you're about the job, like this is going to be awesome because I can mentor you in exactly the direction I want you 100%. to go. Yeah. So if you I got the character traits, you know, if yeah. you're hungry to learn, you got the work ethic, you're yeah. coachable, right? Like we, I'll take that all day. Yeah. Blank canvas, like no problem. You show up ready to go. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a win for the team. Yeah. For what sure. a good opportunity, man. You got all the senior guys. Like that's, a, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, he's got, 50, 60 years worth of experience if all those guys have been there for 10 years. Yep, very fortunate. Pour it into you right away. You don't mm -hmm. have to mess with yeah. you know, your bad tab spec or your bad sergeant that you dealt with at you know, a conventional unit. So I yeah. guess there's some good and bad of that because I guess I hearken back to the day where you had to have at least two years of experience of being an E4 before you come into SF, you know, go to SFAS. <clears throat> Whereas now, yeah, you know, you can come up. Program. Yeah. Before you now, you can come straight in, and I think there was to me, there was something to be said because at least you're maybe you are coming there with bad baggage, but yet you also understand the military, how it functions, 
you know, you've got some seniority behind you and stuff like that. So it's a little bit, I would think a little bit better, but after listening to a lot more 18 x-rays, I guess it's. Well, you would have missed that. You would have missed that ash chewing from your sergeant major if he'd spent two years in the 82nd and then gone to selection. But I I think to your point, Rob, if you have the perspective, because you learn stuff from every single leader you have. Right. If you have a great leader, you learn what great looks like and you take those those lessons learned and you re- replicate them. Yeah. Right. You also learn with a horrible leader. Yes. Right? Like this is what, Probably more what so. not to do. Right. Yeah. As long as you can be open enough to realize that it is an opportunity, you are learning, you yeah. are improving. It's painful, right? Right. But instead of just looking at it negative, like, this guy sucks, I hate my life, this is awful, it's like, wow, I'm taking all kinds of notes on what not to do yeah. so that I am, you know, an actual quality leader. Mm-hmm. What do you find, so you just said you like clean slates and all that kind of stuff now, you know, and you love that all day with passion. And, and what about those guys that are coming to you that do have a couple years of experience, maybe even a, uh, another group? Uh, or in the conventional forces, do you see that there's a difference between them and the uh, X-rays? Is there is there a gap, you know, of quality? Just curious, or not? I, I can't say there's a gap in quality. I think that they just come with with different advantages. Um, the guys coming over with the experience, good or bad, have that to lean on, and the X-rays tend to just be hungry and motivated and ready to go yeah right so there's positives to both sides Mm so i mean since my team life now going on i don't know 12 or so years i've i've seen both and there's there's upsides to both yeah you know yeah all right so four to five months you're training up just curious was it everything you thought it was now that you're in the door you're wearing the beret it's sf you had this idea, at least from the read-up that you did prior to that. You haven't gone to the fight yet, but at this moment, do you think you did the right decision? Is what you thought it was? And are you thinking, oh, geez, man. No, I mean, I was loving what I was doing. Yeah. Um, I ended up really falling in love with it once I was in Afghanistan. But during the train-up, it was just, you know, it was, that, it was a fight hose. So I was almost so overwhelmed with the amount of work I had to do that that's all I could really focus on. But I, I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. You know, I enjoyed the late nights and I had a lot to prove. Um, so it was what I wanted. It was more than what I expected. Again, a lot of it had to do with the type of team I went to. Yeah. Right? My thought was I get to an SF team and I'd be on mounted gun trucks or helicopters going in to do direct action. Like that's all I thought my job would be. And we ended up doing quite a bit of that, but the team I went to did a lot more low visibility stuff, a lot of plain clothes stuff. So we did the sexy cool guy tactics, but we also had this all this other stuff that we were doing as well that I was not anticipating whatsoever. And then to go to Afghanistan for on a nine month rotation doing both. Wow. Oh, okay. Right. So yeah, I mean to fast forward a little bit, that first trip, nine months, we're in Kandahar, and I got more in that nine months than most SF guys will get in several years. Oh, yeah. What year was this that you were in? This was in 2010. Okay. 2010, uh, beginning of 2010. We went in like January or so, uh, February. Kind of right after the the stuff got heavy? 
I mean, that was the thick of it. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Was, there was a lot going on there at yep. that time. Yep. Yeah. Y'all were busy, man. It was, yeah, it was busy. And I say that I was, my, I was provided such a wide experience that would rival more senior SF guys because of the length yeah. of the deployment, plus the type of team I was on. So we were doing split team where we had half of us were on the Pakistan border and the other half were in downtown Kandahar. So I got a taste of the oh, wow. split team life. Cool. Right? Which for some SF guys, they can go their whole career without actually operating in that way. But that's, that's the way ODAs are built. There's yeah. a re the reason why there are 12 guys on an ODA with the MOSs they have is so you can split the team in half and conduct operations mm -hmm. that in that manner. That's right. why there's the numbers they are. So I went right into doing that, which was cool, right? And then, but that also increases every dude's need to have a better understanding of the other sections. Did you, you load out have. knowing that that's what you were going to be doing? No, I had no idea. Okay. <laughs> I had no idea yeah. until we got there. I had, I had way too much trying to figure out what an ISLID was for me to know, like, <laughs> yeah. operationally what we were going to be doing. Right, right. We hit the ground, and so we're split team. Half the team is in a real rural environment. The mm -hmm. other half is in an urban environment. And I got a taste of both of those life. And then we were doing the mounted, you know, Matt V half infill stuff. But we were yeah. also doing, you know, soft skin Corollas driving yeah. through downtown Kandahar, right? So it was like the complete right. and total spectrum. And you probably weren't hunting for work at that point in time. You're probably like just no. hot and heavy. Yeah, you know, and like our team really wasn't designed to do the up armored, mm -hmm. more direct stuff, but because right. of how much stuff was going on, particularly in that it. region at that time, Kandahar and Hellman, yeah. We just got tasked to do more stuff than what we were technically designed to do. So yeah. I was exposed to the full spectrum of what ODAs can be exposed to in a, you know, in that nine month period. Did you relieve somebody or, you know, your team or was it you guys were going in for the mission? No, we came in behind somebody. Okay. Yep. We came in behind somebody and then we ended up expanding our footprint out a little bit. The way that that team operated was they would flip between the same three teams would constantly rotate. So they rotated on a different cycle than all the other teams in the other companies. It's kind of crazy that you end up like going off cycle like that. Um, I don't know. I just thought you guys did it not that way. But your team was special. Our team was unique. And then, you know, the, that the, time frame was unique too. Right? That time frame was unique. The CRIF also is off cycle. So the, what now is the, now is the CRIF used to be the CIF, but the, the, um, commanders and extremist force, yes. um, which now it does a whole different kind of thing, but that takes up an entire company of a battalion. So they're off cycle. Some of the special teams are off cycle, but for the most part in third group, it was first battalion, third battalion, second battalion, and they just you know, rotate. repeat, rot rotate. Right? Yeah. Huh. Okay. So was it the first deployment where you ran into trouble and your injury happened or was it? No, it was my second. Second. So what happened when you came back? I mean, after the first rotation? Came back um, and was uh, obsessed with being an SF. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Initially, my plan was to come in, do my five years, serve, do my pot, get some combat, get some experience, and then leave the army and go into another sector of government work. I had my eye on the Secret Service. Right? Okay. So it was, a, it was a lily pad for me at first, right? Um, after that nine months, I'm like, I can't imagine doing anything else. Like, this is what I'm, this is my purpose. Yeah. This is why I'm here, is to do this 
in this fashion, in this regiment, this is where I belong. Well, let me let me take before you go further. Let me ask you. So, being a part of that special team and observing the other side, were you damn glad you were that with that team, or did you ever think, you know, it'd be nice to be over there? Um, no, I'm super grateful then and now because I was exposed to so much. Yeah. Even though for me it was backwards, right? Like I learned and saw that stuff at the very beginning of my career when most of the guys transitioned to that line of work or that side of the house as more senior dudes. So I was exposed to stuff really early. Yeah, I would have couldn't, couldn't imagine. I mean, nine months, you know, in the fight. And you probably, yeah. you probably realized too, like, this is way sexier than Secret Service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just, it was, you know, the combination of the, of the rugged, you know, getting your boots dirty and then, you know, having a, to dress it up and kind of go into a more professional environment. It was just, it was just the full, the full scope of operations. And, um, and that's where I, I knew this. So I re-enlisted in Afghanistan on that trip for okay. like six years. I'm wow. like, nope, this is what I'm doing. Awesome. I'm re-enlisting right now. Let's get this thing going. So when I got back, um, I was only back a few weeks. And my company sergeant major was like, hey, man, um, you're on the specialty team. You, just, you did great. They want you. But I have an open slot on my DA team, on my direct action team. And he's like, do you want to do that? And I'm like, yeah, I kind of do. You know? <laughs> so I talked to my team sergeant, and I'm like, hey, man. Um, and they had pumped a whole bunch of specialized training into me oh, yeah. before the trip. And I was, in, I was in a school at that point specific for that team. And I'm like, hey, boss, uh, this, the sergeant major just offered me this slot on this other team. And he's like, yeah, I know. I'm like, hey, I, I told you I'd give you two rotations, which I did. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll stay. And he's like, nah, man, like you did this and you did it well, but yeah. go over there and like get, get some of that, which I know is what you want and what you're built for. That's right. Cool. Cause I stood out. I was like an oddball on this specialized team. Right. right? Like I don't blend in very many places. No. Hey, the Sergeant right? Major you said was a Napoleon, you know, guy and everything. So I bet you did stand out. I stood out quite, yeah, often, yeah. right? Like me <laughs> in a soft skin Corolla driving through downtown Canada yeah. does not blend at all. <laughs> yeah. Right. So like me There's in the like, low visibility world is kind of <laughs> odd. Yeah. Uh, I managed to pull it off, but the, the company Sergeant Mage is like, Hey man, you want to go, you want to go do this. These guys are prepping, um, for this next deployment. This is where they're going. It's going to be a hornet's nest. It's going to be hot and heavy. Um, now, what, you, what was the time that? frame that they were they were rotating out? So between those two trips, I had let's see, I had about a year, about oh, twelve okay, months. Okay, yeah, yeah, because um, I got back. Yeah, I had about twelve months. I was thinking like you were going to tell me you had like a couple months. No, no, I did have a, another short little trip that I did back to Afghanistan in between. My transition from my first team to my second team uh, went on this tasking, but um, before my next combat rotation was about 12 months. Mm. Married at this time, did you find your current spouse at this time frame, or is that much later? That was later. Okay. Yeah, that was later. So I make the transition to the, the DA focus team. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, this is what I thought I was getting into originally. Okay. Uh, this is what this kind of looks like. Yeah. You know. How did you, when did you begin to learn that? Through the training cycle? Or? Through the training cycle. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just, I mean, the priorities were just much more narrow mm. than what I had been, what I had come from. Yeah. Where it was, it was super wide. And then I get to this team and it was very narrow. Like this team is designed to go into direct action and that's really all we do. 
Yeah. So we were just on the range constantly, range, fight house, gym, yeah. track. Like that's really all we did. Yeah. So from a football standpoint, you just went from a playbook that's about three inches down to about a, a quarter of an inch playbook. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Real easy. Keep it five plays. We're just going to mo make movement to, to change things around and stuff and window wash it, but simpler. Simpler. Yeah. Simpler. Complex, challenging, obviously, yeah. but simpler yeah. than what I had just come from. Yeah. Mm. Now, when you were walking in the door, were you seen then because of your nine month rotation of being this other team a little bit more senior than some of your peers? I don't think so. Okay. Um, there were a couple guys on that team that I had actually went through the Q course with. Um, and you know, I had a reputation in the company, in the battalion, um, for like my physicality and as in combatives and an MMA. So I was a, I was a great fit. It was actually kind of funny because the, it plays out later. We'll come back to it. But the team I went to, there was this ongoing joke that they were making an ODA football team because everyone in the team was just massive. Yeah. Right. We had a couple dudes that were really, really small that kind of balanced out the curve a little bit, but everyone on the team was like six one, six two, like two thirty, just like beefed so up. You were handpicked for a reason. That it was a very obvious option <laughs> yeah. for the company leadership to move me on that team. Sure, yeah, yeah. you know, it was an obvious option. Yeah, yeah. And we used to joke, and we'll hit this in a bit. I'm sure my my team leader, a, a detachment commander, um, he played football at West Point. He was an offensive lineman at West Point without okay. equipment. He was. 290, about 6'4", big, big cat, right? And we used to joke that he and I could never roll in the same vehicle because if yeah. one went down, the other one was the only one big enough and strong enough <laughs> to move the other one. Right. And as fate would have it, that actually ended up playing itself out. Oh, jeez. Wow. Mm -hmm. Don, you're being quiet over there, man. I'm just, I'm just listening. You, you can dive in at any time. It's great stuff. <laughs> So, all right, so you come back. You're finally where you want to be and everything, and you're training up, though, for the next turn. Yep. And that turn comes around. Where did you guys end up going? We went to Wardak Province. This would have been 2012. This is 2012. 2012? Yeah. yeah, 2012. Yeah. Wardak, I mean, historically, mm -hmm. very hot. You yep. know, list of casualties and guys that yep. were killed in action, and you see the location, and Wardak is on quite a bit of them there's yeah. some resilient fighters yeah from that region that's like a historical strong point oh I mean, yeah that's like old old school it is going back to the soviets yeah. you know yep. and the terrain has a lot to do with that it's really yep. challenging terrain and minimal roads to navigate yeah. so it's tailor-made for to hold defensively yeah plus you're you're fighting uphill and you're wearing your kit and you're carrying gear and they're in sandals and man dresses with an ak-47 like it's that's tough. And it's their backyard. It's their backyard. They grew up there. Right? Yeah. So our camp, right, on that on that deployment, it was a VSO mission. It stood for Village Stabilization Operations. Right. Right? Phenomenal concept. Sure. Really, really hard to execute. Made a lot of sense. Like, let's yeah. take these teams and embed them in these very austere environments, and we're not going to build fobs and bases. Yeah. Because when we transition it and hand it to them, it has to be sustainable for them. Right. So if we build all this infrastructure... It's, it's just going to collapse. Yeah, they don't know how to do that. Right. So we were actually limited with what we could do infrastructure-wise. Well, that's, right. that's almost like true SF. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And we were, we were psyched about it. We're like, yeah. this is perfect. We, yeah. we got the exact mission we wanted in the exact place we wanted, doing it the way we wanted to do it, right? So austere, rugged, 
cut off, right? Very little mm -hmm. support, a kind of an authentic SF guy mission. So yep, we were yeah. psyched about it. Our base camp sat at 7,600 feet. All right, elevation. Yeah. And at times we were conducting ops that were going up 12, 1500 feet. Yeah. And you can only get trucks or even a helicopter up so high. So a lot yeah. of that ends up being dismounted. And yep. to your point, man, we learned very quickly that even though we're studs and we can run fast and do yeah. push ups, like that Altitude. will crush you, yeah. especially when you're humping 60, 70 pounds of gear. Yeah. And there was at one point, we were chasing these dudes and we ended up in this tunnel system, which is a whole nother animal on how right. you manage to clear a tunnel, right? Any subterranean environment is really, really, really challenging. Yeah. And we just kind of dove in and I'm literally in a tunnel. I don't want to fast forward too far, but, but I'm literally in a tunnel with my team. Yeah. Comms are cut off. Yep. And I'm like, what are we doing right now? Right? We're all out of breath. We can barely walk. Yeah. I'm like, uh, and my team sergeant, before we were all looking at each other, like, are we seriously going to keep going forward? Like, what are we doing? Yeah. And he's like, everyone get out right now. Just like, didn't feel right. Yeah, it, did, it was, yeah, it was, it was a real bad you've, scenario. You've completely lost the initiative at that point. Like you're like, you want to talk about being in somebody's backyard. Okay. You know, you fight harder, whatever. But once you're, you're down in a tunnel, every advantage you had going in is gone. Yeah. And we were great with clearing villages sure. and CQB, but again, tunnels are its own thing, and we were not prepared for it. Yeah. And uh, we we thank God nothing happened. My team sergeant recognized it and was like, "Everyone, like, get out of here! Like we're we're not doing this." How deep were you in? It really did not that far. Oh, we yeah. probably went in maybe 40, 50 feet. Comms got cut off. Still, that's yeah. we had a, like a verbal relay to get yeah. like the to get the communications back out. But yeah. Do, do you have any idea how long that tunnel was, or like no, is that connected into a Karez system, or? I we ended up no, we ended no, up no. dropping it with a couple hellfires. So whatever nice. it was didn't last <laughs> yeah. that much longer. Yeah. 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 We pulled out, got to a point where like it's calling yeah. some air support and to get the hell out of here. The reason I say that is they've got Karez systems that go from literally the Himalayas out into the plains of Afghanistan. I mean, you're talking miles, miles. and miles yep. and miles. So if you get in there, you have no comms, who the hell knows where you could end up if you're captured, compromised, whatever. Like, it's just a whole subterranean world. Well, there. let's paint the picture of the tunnel, though, because are we talking, we're not talking about on your hands and knees. You're talking about standing upright, huge tunnel. Yeah, you can walk, walk through it. Yeah. So just imagine, like, hallways underground. Crazy. I mean, yeah. so a lot of times when they, you know, people hear tunnel or whatever in, in these types of situations, they may be thinking more like Vietnam where you had tunnel rats, you know. Yeah. No, these are like full-on huge, huge tunnels. Yeah, yep. some of the creses, you could drive a tank down through them. Yeah. They're just enormous. They're big, an old uh, irrigation system mm -hmm. from, yeah. you know, hundreds of years ago. The geography and the topography over there is unbelievable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like you're in a postcard or you're in a history book, mm -hmm. you know, all yeah. blown out like T-62 tanks, just like buried into the side of a mountain, yep. you know, literally. Yep. It's like, wow, there's you, like a lot of, a lot of shit happened here. Or you get up in the mountains and you're like, it's just the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Unbelievable. You're like, okay, I'm on the Western end of the Himalayas. This is amazing. Yeah. You know? But that comes with like 20,000 foot elevations, that like helicopters can't get over and you're just you're out there, man. No. Yeah. So how was that? <clears throat> how was that? I was going to say with the altitude and everything. How was that? You trying to get if you needed a emergency exfil or anything? How was it? The terrain wise. Challenging. Yeah. Um, the helo ops were were limited a lot to the altitude and to the surface to air threat that was in the area. Mm -hmm. So uh, we mostly traveled via vehicle or 
by foot mm. or just some crazy like three or four K offset where the yeah. bird could put us down someplace that they felt safe and then we'd have to hump it in. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I mean, it's, you know, like a lot of people, when you think about, or when I think about like terrain and stuff like that, you know, you think, all right, well, I'm going to be able to get out of here. They're going to put me here. I'm going to be able to get out of here rather easily, you know, no problem, but. Nah, some of the spots, <laughs> once you, some of the spots, once you got there, yeah. you were essentially on your own, yeah. right? Like for a medevac bird to come in, you'd have to move, you know, 500 meters to a K to even get to a, a, like a reasonable HLZ. Yeah. Yeah. You know? How many guys were with you at that time frame? We had 12 on the team, and then we had an infantry squad uplift that was with us. Okay. So about 15 or so of those dudes. Can you say what unit those guys came from? They were from 3rd ID or 4th okay. ID. Okay. One of the two. Yeah. I should know that. 3rd would be uh, Stewart. 4th would be Colorado, right? Then, yeah. I, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't know. Yeah, I was asking because you think you'd be in the you're in the mountains. Maybe they'd give you a tenth mountain guy squad, but nope. Well, that's using way too much logic, Paul. No, no, there's that, no, there's I don't think the army thinks that far ahead of like, hey. Well, if they know. did, they wouldn't put him in fucking Fort Polk, Louisiana. <laughs> right, exactly. Tenth yeah. right. <laughs> mountain, middle of nowhere, Louisiana. Yep. Yeah, no mountains there. So yeah, it was a real small footprint. Twelve of us, fifteen or so infantry cats. And then a couple other enablers that we had to cook. You know, mechanic, so you, you didn't have any, uh, what was your Afghani, your, your partner, sister forces? So we were partnered up with uh, an Afghan ANA SF team. Okay. Right? okay. So we built Afghan SF teams exactly yeah. the way we build us. Yeah. Right? Same MOSs. They were co-located with us. They lived with us. Yeah. Um, and then we were conducting a lot of joint missions with conventional ANA, A&P, Afghan National Police, and then the Afghan local police. Mm. So yeah. this ends up becoming a, an important point because when you're using that many different units, they're just sending different dudes like for the missions, right? Because yeah. there's like ten, hundreds, thousands of these different guys that exist, don't exist on the books, off the books. Like these dudes would show up. We'd be training them, but we were seeing new faces every yeah. single day. Aside from our organic ANASF team that we lived with, these other dudes would show up for missions and oftentimes we'd see a brand new face, you know, pretty much every mission. Like I, wow. I've never seen this guy before. Yeah. So no continuity. Not a very lot of few. Yeah. Very few, you know, Which so is why you see some of the photos afterwards with guys doing, you know, the trigger finger and everything. Cause obviously they were trained. Right. And you know, it, <laughs> it poses a security threat, right. Which, which ends up coming to fruition where, if you're working with these new people every single time, it's impossible to establish a baseline with any of these guys. Right. So if there's no baseline, there's no way to notice if something is off. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the insider attack threat, right, was huge in Afghanistan yep. during this time. Right? That was what was causing a lot of the casualties, and a lot of it was because of the way we were conducting these ops with the units we were conducting them with, and they were just sending these dudes that the coalition forces had never seen before. Yeah. You know? Do you guys have any of that in we, your particular team on this mission? What's that? Uh, insider. That's how I got shot up. Oh. No yep. shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this was, and this was an insider attack. So what? what happened? So we were getting ready to go on a joint mission, and, you know, our camp was basically had, had two layers to it, our internal 
an internal area where we had our ops in and where we lived and chow hall and stuff. And I use that word very lightly. It was this yeah. blown out camp thing on the top of a mountain. But then we, we did build some infrastructure, just, you know, some like a little ring fence. And then we had an exterior wire that was where our motor pool was and some of our storage and stuff like that. You're so talking about literal wire. Literal. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. We developed the SOP that when these guys would come for an op, they would stay outside of our camp and the leadership from all the sections would come into the motor pool and we would brief them on where we were going and what we were doing. And then they would go relay that to their troops and then we would roll just to try to minimize how many guys were just around us, mm, which right. we learned the hard way. First or second op we did, there are just hundreds of dudes with guns all around us. And we're like, yeah. we are way too exposed right now. Right. As a Bravo, right, myself and the other Bravos on the team, one of our primary responsibilities is base security. So we're like, okay, we need to come up with a system that makes sense to protect us when we're in this vulnerable position. So on this particular day, getting ready for a joint op, and we had been there for five or so months, five and a half months. We only had a couple, two, three weeks left before we were rotating out. And oh, uh, getting ready for the mission, and leadership comes in, and also a Ford Ranger comes in, drives right into our motor pool, swings around and parks, and I see it right away, and I'm pissed off. I'm like, these fucking guys, man, okay. Yeah. Now I'm at the crossroads. It's do I handle this right now, bring it up, either myself or go to my team sergeant or go to my captain and say, hey, address this, like get this out of here. We have an yeah. SOP and they're violating it, which yeah. happens. Sure. Or I wait and I address it after. I decide to wait. But it's on my mind. It's, I'm irritated, but I'm like, okay, whatever. You know, Afghans, yeah. they just do dumb shit sometimes. Okay, cool. We'll There's not a lot of later. discipline in the force. Not a ton. Yeah. You know? And, uh, you know, and not uh, unusual for something like that to happen. No, not at all. Right? Yeah. And uh, ODA success is hinged entirely on a relationship yeah. or multiple relationships. That's it. We work bilaterally, yeah. right? We're not a unilateral force. So that rapport is critical for us to be successful. So these yeah. decision points become very challenging to make yeah. because you either you either risk the rapport or you risk security. Yeah. One of the two. It's a teeter-totter. Yeah. So I decided to maintain the relationship and giving up security, which I knew, right? Sure. Okay. So we're going through our pre-mission brief. Captain's talking to their leadership. Do our final comps checks. We're in like a circle going around the horn. We're good. I'm good. I'm good. So my radio's good, and I turn as the undisciplined soldier that I was and still probably am. And I start walking towards my truck to get loaded up, to get ready to roll. As I'm walking away, I hear gunfire coming from behind me. And my first thought was one of our Afghan partners had just AD'd yeah, AD. their weapon, which wouldn't be unheard of. Right. I'm like, okay, here we go. But then round two, round three, round four, okay, it's a belt fed weapon. Someone's deliberately shooting. And I snap my head around and one of the Afghan national police officers had jumped up on the back of that truck, that Ford Ranger, that had a PKM mounted on the back of it, Shit. which is a Russian belt-fed machine gun, yeah. and just began opening up into the group, right, from maybe 15 feet away. So completely exposed, right? phenomenal opportunity for them. Mm -hmm. And this was the initiation of a complex ambush. So we start taking rounds and rockets from outside the camp as well, Wow, right? So I see the guy shooting, and my training tells me to move to cover and eliminate the threat, right? Like right. react to near ambush. And I've got cover all around me. There's armored vehicles around. And uh, 
that's what my training tells me to do. Well, I also notice one of our infantry uplift soldiers who was set to drive for us that day is just frozen like a deer in headlights. And he's maybe six, seven, eight feet away from me. And he's just standing there staring at this right. guy on a machine gun who's 15 feet in front of him. Young kid, first deployment, our infantry kids, most of them were fresh out of basic training. Yeah. So I see that and my instinct to protect him supersedes my training, yeah. right? And we'll come back to this in a second. So I beeline for this kid and it's maybe six steps from me. Right. Put myself in between him and the shooter and that's when I get hit for the first time, boom, I feel it just below my ass cheek and my leg. And I end up falling, I'm on top of this kid. So I know I'm hit. I had been yeah. wounded twice before on the same deployment. Okay. Right? Took some shrapnel to the back of my shoulder, took an AK-47 round to the side of the face, two different events. So I knew what being shot and blown up felt like. I'm like, okay, I'm definitely shot. We'll, right. we'll get to that. So I dragged myself and this kid behind a truck. Um, people now are all on the ground screaming. It's a total, complete and total mass cow scenario. I find a rifle that's on the ground next to me, attempt to put that in action on the shooter who's maybe 15 feet in front of me. I take a couple really horribly placed shots and then one of my teammates eliminates that threat, right? right. We're still taking fires from outside the camp, but the immediate threat's gone. So I move to my next course of action, I check on this soldier and he's fine. He's in shock, awesome. but there's no holes in the kit. So now I gotta see what's wrong with myself. So I expose my leg, I rip my pants open, and my right leg is just hammered meat. Like it had been put through a, a meat grinder. And it's just tissue and, and, and bone. And I see the river of blood that's flowing from me to where I was originally hit. And it's deep and dark and red and flowing. And I know my femoral artery is cut. I was just yeah. getting ready to say your main artery. Yep. I'm like, okay, femoral artery's cut. I have maybe eight or so minutes left until I'm bled out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so. And the fact that that happened and how long do you, I mean, it's probably hard to know for certain. How long was it from the time that you got hit to the point, this point right now? 15 seconds. Yeah. No, 20 yeah. seconds. Yeah. But it, it felt like it, a month. Yeah. You know, right. just the time just slows, just so down. Um, so it was quick, but. That's a lot of blood still. Oh yeah. It's, I mean, it's pumping out of me. I can just see it pumping out of my leg. And I'm like, I need to get a tourniquet on like, right now. So I, I grab a tourniquet out of my kit, slap it on, wrench it down. Um, bleeding doesn't stop. I get a second tourniquet on, wrench that down. Bleeding may have slowed down, but I'm still bleeding. Ended up right. being, I took about four rounds to my right leg. Oh my God. Um, yeah. My scrotum was also um, lacerated. Mm -hmm. And I took a round to my lower left leg as well. I didn't realize the other injuries right. until actually calf until area. way later. Yeah, calf area. I went right through my calf. The right leg's obviously the problem at this point. Yeah. So I got two tourniquets on, and um, one of my teammates gets over to me, and it's, it's, it's I don't want to say mass hysteria, but pretty much complete Close. total chaos. Yeah. Right? There's 12 U.S. casualties on the ground, mm -hmm. two of which are killed, and another 10 Afghan casualties, right. four or five are killed. Right? So you're yeah. talking about 20-some-odd people are laying yeah. on the ground. Literal worst-case scenario. Worst-case scenario. Our senior medic mm -hmm. is also a casualty. Our junior medic Jesus. was a National Guard soldier who had just graduated the Q course 
who was attached to our team for that mission. Yeah. Now, again, this is five and a half months into the deployment, right. and he had plenty of work to be done as an operator and as a medic because right. we were taking casualties quite often. So he, was, he became very seasoned very quickly on that deployment. Right. But he's now running the show. Junior yeah. medic, not organic to the team, yeah. just graduated the Q course. Yeah. And the kid, his name's Connor, performed spectacularly. Unbelievable what he, what he had managed to do. Yeah. Mm. But it's a total shit show, right? Yeah. One of my teammates gets to me, and uh, the look on his face said everything. He's looking at me like, this is really bad. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm fighting him off. Because this is, this is high femoral. Like your, your up on my hip, up in your hip. And yep. that's, you know, that's a tough one. To that's stop, a real tough one. If you can. Right. Oftentimes you can't without actually getting in there with a clamp yeah. and clamping it off. Yeah. Like tourniquets, not really an option. No. Like it's going to do, but, maybe it does something. But, but how far away is the Delta? He is going through triage at this point. Oh, I actually, geez. I actually. He doesn't even know about you though. Nah, not at this point, no. Yeah. He's in total triage mode, as he's supposed to be. Yeah. He's categorizing every single patient, yeah. and he's not really hands-on at this point because he's yeah. got 20-some-odd casualties yeah. right, to manage. So one of my other teammates got to me, and um, I kind of could tell what he was thinking, and I'm trying to get him away from me. I'm like, dude, like I'm, I'm convinced I'm dead. Right? Let's, right. Be, let's be frank. I'm dying right there. I know it. I'm, I'm surprisingly okay yeah. with it. But I didn't want him wasting time on me. I'm like, right. bro, I know there are other guys that you can actually help. I'm not one of them. Like, get away from me. And he, he ignored me. And, of course, he put on another tourniquet, got IV access, and then his work was pretty much done. So um, Did he stop the bleeding at that point, or did it even slow down further? Or? I think it slowed down a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it still hadn't stopped because he moved on to his next patient, and I'm there examining myself, and I can still see blood coming out of my thigh. So in kind of a last-ditch desperation effort, I grab some gauze, I open up one of the tourniquets, and I ram this gauze up into my thigh, kind of moving upwards towards my hip. And I'm trying to feel around for the pulse, right? right. I'm trying to feel around for the pulse. My hands are like meat mittens because all my blood is shunting inward to protect my organs, so I really can't feel anything. I have no dexterity. Now I'm rubbing past broke, broken bone because my femur was shattered. Yeah. And now the pain kicks in really for the first time. Yeah. I'm trying to stay conscious. And I think I feel something and I kind of just go for it. I ram down, I feed the rest of the gauze in, and then I re-secure the tourniquet back on top. Yeah. And at that point, I'm like, okay, my, my work here really is done. Like I got nothing left. That's all you to can do. do. Right. So I just like drag myself over, you know, five or six feet to actually our senior medic who had taken a round through his calf. Are you, is round still going up? You're still under yep. attack at this point. Rounds are still going off. Yeah. Uh, JTAC, our combat controller, he's working the radios, air supports on site. I was just getting ready to ask the same question. So oh, yeah. Weird, yeah. So they flexed every single air platform in Holy the AO cow. to us. Yeah. It was the most catastrophic, and to this day, the most catastrophic insider attack since 9-11, right, was this, this event. Wow. So we've got Spectre gunship overhead, F-16s, yeah. we've okay. got AWT, like all the toys are there. Yeah. And our JTAC is just rain and hell, but we're still under attack. So the medevac yeah. bird can't land, right? right. It's, it's, on, it's on station, but it can't land. Yeah. So I'm laying next to one of my teammates and I'm just kind of talking to him, waiting you know, to die. It's like, this is gonna happen. Reactionary force coming in, anybody you know, coming to save you outside of that? or? No. Re Eventually, yeah. yeah. Eventually. Um, it took 
about an hour and a half before the medevac bird could land. Holy cow. And then it wow. took about around the same time for the QRF to get there. Which is probably the fastest they could get there anyway. Yeah, because they couldn't come in by helicopter. Yeah. They came in by vehicles, but it just took them that amount of time to get out to That's get to probably us. Probably how far in you were. Yeah. I mean yeah. we were just so offset. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get you off course there, but uh No, no, you're good, man. Um yeah, about an hour and a half until the medevac bird could land. And uh and I'm in and out of consciousness. I get loaded on the bird. And I bring this up because it's just it's so impactful to me. One of my teammates who loaded me on the bird was saying his last goodbye to me, right? Like, I'm, yeah. I'm definitely dying. And we both right. know it, you know? And yeah. just, uh, I was, I've never been filled with such pride for what I have the opportunity to do and live amongst such giants of men to that caliber. Yeah. Um, I was... I, my heart was full in that moment, even though I was on my last dying breath. Right? Yeah, yeah. I get loaded on the bird. I'm on the first medevac chalk that can that can move out, and they really had two options on where to send us. Right, we had a base that had a forward surgical team, an FST, that was located closer to where we were than Bagram, which obviously has a higher level of care. Bagram's got a full blown hospital, sure. but it was a longer flight. So they sent us to this other location because it was faster to get us there. It's not a bad decision to make, but it just has a lower level of medical right. capability. They send us there. I get pulled off the bird. I get brought in, and I need a blood transfusion really bad. I'm almost completely drained of blood. Yeah. So they put me on a blood transfusion, and they start pumping me full of blood. And I ended up giving me like eight or nine units, like a ton of blood. Yeah. Problem was it was the wrong blood type. Oh, oh shit. So <laughs> right. what happens when you get the wrong blood type? You, you die. Yeah, you can go to Sweet. shock and die, right? Yeah, you die. Yeah, so... Eight units already, though, before they figured this out. Yes. Wow. So they're pumping me full of the wrong blood type. And what had happened was my team sergeant was on the same bird as me. We've got similar last names. Mm -hmm. They gave me his blood. Okay. They gave him my oh. blood. Oh, I'm O shit. positive. I'm a universal yeah. donor. Anyone can take my blood. Yeah. He's AB negative. I oh. can't take AB negative. Okay. So I'm getting his blood. He's getting my blood. He was fine, but yeah. it started killing me. So yeah. all my organs start shutting down, my liver, my kidneys, my lungs, wow. everything's deteriorating. And the docs don't know what the problem is. They think it's just probably due to the trauma and the shock, right? Because right? I was on the ground for 90 minutes sure. with the sliced femoral artery and almost out of blood completely. Sh should already be dead by should already be dead. rights anyway. So the doc's not thinking wrong blood type, right? right? The doc's is thinking, yeah, we just didn't get him in time, you know? Yeah. So they throw me back on another helicopter and they send me to Bagram. They're okay. like, we can't, we don't know what the problem is. What's the, what's the time between? 10 minutes. Oh, okay. Maybe. So it's while I'm on the flight to Bagram that they realize that they're pumping my team sergeant full of my blood and they yeah. gave me his while yeah. I'm in the air. Is he like Laverty and you're Lavery? That kind of close? It's, I won't say his last name, but it is close. Okay. It is very close. It's <laughs> L.A. Yeah. I'll say that. Yeah. His wow. last name begins with L.A. Um, so I'm on the bird to Bagram and the docs realize what happened and they call Bagram and they say, hey man, this is what happened. We just pumped this dude full of the wrong blood type. He's not gonna survive the flight. There's no way. Just yeah. be ready to receive his body when he gets there. And it's like a nine, 10 minute flight. So they're, in a way they were right. You know, I code on that flight. I'm uh -huh. like out and they're at the panels going and they're trying to keep me alive, but I'm pretty much dead. 
and they still get me off the bird. They put me right into surgery. They take my leg off kind of at the ankle just to try to minimize how much damage my body was trying to recover from. Right. Dialysis, um, I get intubated um, on another transfusion, tubes everywhere. And the dialysis is to remove the, the wrong bad. blood type. Yeah, to help your body from my kidneys. From the, from the plasma. Because yeah. that's a toxin, basically. Right, yeah. so gotcha. it's poison. Okay. So my kidneys are failing. Gotcha. I'm in renal failure Jeez. because of the blood. So I'm on dialysis to, to save my kidneys. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously I'm here, so I managed, I managed to survive. Yeah, but well, holy cow, man. So, like, how long before they finally got you stable with the right blood and yeah, everything? How long before you're conscious again? Yeah. I ended up getting conscious. Um, I'm intubated. I'm in the ICU of Bagram. Okay. And... I'm restrained to the bed. You know what I yeah. was doing was I was tr I was ripping out my my breathing tube. I was gonna say right. you're strapped because yeah. So you won't do that, right? So I, the first memory I have is me tied down to a bed, breathing on a machine. That's scary as shit. Probably it's it. horrible because when you try to breathe on your own power with a machine that's breathing for you on a certain time. It can it can offset, so it feels yeah. like you're suffocating. Yeah, right. So it's 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 torture. It's torture. And I'd only be awake for 10, 15 seconds. The nurse would see I was I was up, and she'd just snow me and put me right back under. Wow. So I'm like in and out of consciousness, experiencing that, which was hell. Yeah. For for a couple of days, and it ended up taking about five days, five or six days, for them to stabilize me enough at Bagram so that I could survive a flight to Germany. So that was the next evolution after that. Wow. And then you go to Germany and then from there you end up at Walter Reed. Go to Germany, they take my leg off up to the knee and I'm only there a day mm -hmm. and then I end up at Walter Reed Bethesda the day after that. Okay. Um, still in real rough shape, you know, straight to the ICU. Right. Uh, my family was there. Right. Well, in, in Germany, were you able to to wake up, be conscious, and see your leg at that point? No. Okay, so you don't even know whether they've been able to repair any of your upper thigh or anything? No. I really have no clue as to like, what's going on, okay. really, at that point. The, my first memory of an understanding of my situation was at Walter Reed in the ICU. Wow. And actually, my surgeon, who was the head of the ortho department, came in. We're still real good friends today. I'm in the ICU, my family's there, they're all in the full garb, you know what I mean? And he's like, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm your doctor, and here's the deal. Your leg is, has been amputated above the knee at this point. My staff wants to remove your leg at the hip right now, like literally right now, because your leg is riddled with infection. It's got moss growing in it, fungus, that yeah. think of a wound. Sure to that degree exposed in a place like <clears throat> Afghanistan for right. that amount of time. It just, every kind of vi disease you could think of was growing yeah. and festering in my thigh. So he just wanted to, and it could kill me. He's like, this, yeah. this could kill you. So my staff wants to take your leg off at the hip right now and just get you moving on in life. But I think I can save some of your leg. It's just gonna right. be a street fight and I need you in this fight with me. Right. Yeah, uh, that was my first memory. And of you don't even Walter know Reed. this dude. You don't know his qualifications. It's almost like me walking and going, Paul. You just got to have faith in me, man. I want to save your leg, but it could kill you if I'm wrong. You pretty know? Much. Yeah. yeah, yeah, pretty much. And I said, okay, yeah, let's do that. Yeah. And he said, cool. 
So then it just began two, three, sometimes four times a week I'm in surgery and they're just incrementally amputating above the infection one millimeter, two millimeter, an inch at a time. Just to see if they can slow down the infection yep. and get things in the save as much as you can. Right, so IV yeah. antibiotics, they're planting these antibiotic beads literally in the leg mm. and I'm just rinse and repeat every other day. Yeah. So I go through that for about six or seven weeks or so, 30 some odd surgeries on yeah. my right leg. <laughs> and obviously at this point, I, I know what's going on. Like I know my leg's gone. Yeah. It's just how much of it are they able to save? Is your family here at this point? Yeah. My family's there. My mother's there. My father was there. Um, my sister came. You know, people would come through and visit, you know, during the time that I was there. I ended up being at Walter Reed for a year total. I was in the ICU about eight weeks. Oh. And then I was in inpatient status for another month or so after that, still going through all my surgeries until they finally got uh, the infection under control. And then that's when I transitioned to outpatient status where I was living on Walter Reed and just going to all my, you know, my appointments every day. Yeah. How long a Pete? Well, first off, how much were they able to save? My FEMA is four inches in length, wow. Wow. which obviously isn't very long. Right. However, for prosthetics, that's. It makes the prosthetic game way more challenging, right? Okay. Like length is everything. Uh, everything, but it's a huge factor in the amputee world is how much, how much of a length you have on your limb, right? And it compounds when you're as tall and as big as I am. Right? So they like, they couldn't grow it because I've also heard of treatments where they try to grow it. They do have that process. Yeah, yeah. Did they talk to you about that or? Yeah, later down the road, but not at that time. Limb lengthening came okay. up. Yeah, but for me, it really wasn't a viable option because my femur had shattered. And it was pretty much just put back together around a titanium rod, okay. which really is what my FEMA consists of at this point. Right. So, so really, it's not really like short. Living, you don't have a whole lot of living bone down there. I have enough to house a metal pole. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So really short limb, right? Mm -hmm. um, no muscle mass in it at all because the infection ate my quad. It ate my hamstring. So you're really just talking about bone and tissue on a very short limb, on a tall dude. Right. So when I got to my, the prosthetic phase of mm. my recovery, my prosthetist was like, yeah, dude, this is a challenge. Now, right. it was a challenge just to get me on a leg that I could meander through life on. Right. But when I'm telling these guys, like, I'm going back to an SF team. Yeah. So I can go back to Afghanistan and conduct combat operations. They're like, right, buddy. Uh, okay, cool. And, you know, they all, yeah, the yeah. doctors, the prosthetists, they all yeah, want to be positive. Yeah, yeah right. You know, yeah. they want to be positive and supportive. Yeah. They're like, yeah, man, absolutely. But you're looking them in the face and like, you can tell. They're <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, this, this is probably not going to happen. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, how long were you on crutches before you got a chance to get fitted? I was on crutches um, maybe th three or so weeks after my last surgery. Okay, so not too, too bad. So then you started PT on with a prosthetic? I mean, I started PT while I was still in my bed going through surgery. So I saw you day. do a video on YouTube, you know, and uh, where you were talking about lifting weights and having, you know, some um, barbells or uh, dumbbells or whatever inside the bed and doing some weight lifting and such. And, and it wasn't because you, it was the, for the physical side of it. It was, you were mentioning that it was primarily because mentally you had to stay in the fight. You had to stay in the game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I decided from the very beginning 
that I was going back to the team. Like that yeah. was the mission from day one. Um, so I'm like, okay, I need to be training because I got a lot of work I need to do. Yeah. So I had him bringing in like TheraBands and little one pound dumbbells and I'm, I'm just like moving weights around. But it was more about the mental side of what that did, you know? And I, yeah. I was able to focus on the things that I could do and just triple down on those things rather than focus on the things that I couldn't do. So it was like, I may only be able to do this one movement, but I'm gonna do this one movement a thousand times today. Yeah. And then tomorrow I'm gonna do it 1200 times. And then I'm gonna keep trying this other thing that I probably can't do, but I'm gonna keep trying it every day until all of a sudden I can do it. And then I'm gonna do it twice as much the next day. So it was just what I was able to focus on through the physical activities was more about my mental well-being than it was any kind of physical recovery. Yeah. Right. So I mean, I, I got to the point where I was sneaking out of my room into the gym yeah. when I had a surgery scheduled. You know, I'd like yeah. once I got to a point where I could get myself up and transition myself into a chair. Yeah. I'm like in the gym, and the surgeons are like, "Where is this dude? We have surgery." And they're like, they find me in the gym, like you know, messing around. They're like, "Dude, what are you doing?" Like, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So I was <laughs> a PT man, borderline out of my mind, like from the very beginning. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, just, it's just a phased approach. So you get up, wheelchair, and then from there, crutches, get into a prosthetic, start walking with a prosthetic and crutches, down to one crutch, down to a cane, yeah. down to nothing. It's just like a, you know, it's just a progression. Wow. What about your teammates? How long was it before they came back from the time that you arrived at Walter Reed? They were home um, just a few weeks later. Because okay. we were at the end of our trip. So those guys physically came to Walter Reed maybe a month after that. Yeah. Um, when they all, you know, they all made a trip up. What did they say when you told them that you were coming back? They weren't surprised, <laughs> you know, to hear that yeah. from me. Yeah. Um, but did I, they also think that it was capable? You were No. Yeah. No. And, you know, I had the conversations with these guys years later. And they're like, yeah, man, we, you know, we were obviously in your corner, but right. we didn't think that you were actually gonna, gonna do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Did you know who Kapchevsky was at that point? The who? Kapchevsky, Sergeant Kapchevsky, he was the Ranger guy, lost his leg. Oh, Cap. Up, yeah. Yeah, below knee guy. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, I grabbed his book okay. while I was at Walter Reed, and then I eventually hit him up, uh, maybe via Facebook or something, mm -hmm. to get some insight from him and some yeah. lessons learned from him. Um, Joey Ivey's another one that lives around here, EOD guy, former Marine, uh, lives in this area, he's on Fox News sometimes, lost both legs EO, uh, from an IED. Oh, yeah, that's right. I've yeah, seen he's gone up to Walter Reed a lot of times to talk to amputees about, hey, you know, stay in the fight, you know, let, let me tell you my story and, you know, try to lift them up. And I don't know if he ever came and you ever saw him. Uh, you ever met him? I've never he met him. He lives in this area. That's cool. Yeah. I've seen him and I'm familiar with the story. I don't think yeah. I've ever met, met him in person. But I mean, I was grasping at references that I could get yeah, my sure. hands on, yeah. you know? And there, 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 were, there were the caps out there, but yeah. just a, that's a tiny, tiny demographic. Right. And, and he, you know, he's a baloney guy, right? Yeah. And it just, it just shows you how, how ignorant I was to the difference between above and a below the knee guy. Right. Yeah. Because I, was, I hadn't even been outfitted for my prosthetic yet, and my physical therapist brought me into the MATC, which is the giant training center at Walter Reed, um, and at that time, you know, this is 2013, Walter Reed is packed, right? right. There's all kinds of guys in there. Yeah. So I'm walking this gym and there's above knee guy, below knee guys, quadruple amputees, and they're all yeah. dragging sleds around doing all this crazy stuff. And I see a below knee guy 
doing all these athletic movements and I'm going, yeah. oh yeah, so if he can do that, then I'm gonna be able to do that. Yeah. And my, my physical therapist is like, well, he has his knee and you don't. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, you guys are gonna give me a new knee yeah. and I'll be fine. And then you strap this thing on and you realize that it's not nearly the same. Right. You know what I mean? So that, oh, was, yeah. that was kind of a blow where I'm like, okay, this, this is actually gonna be uh, really challenging. Mm -hmm. And that ended up happening just countless times. You I know. said Johnny Ivy. I'm sorry. It was Johnny Joey Jones. I said the wrong name. Don't Jones. want to correct myself. But there was a guy that we also had on the show, and the reason why I mentioned about the growing of the femur is because he was the first, I think, that ever did that SF guy as well. The first that ever, I think he was SF, first guy that ever went through that process, I believe, in the military. I think he was like, you know, almost like the experimental guy of growing his... His femur. Oh, the limb length thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a fascinating story, you know, but so you went through a year worth of PT and learning how to walk with the prosthetic and everything? At Walter Reed, yeah. So when, when did you get a prosthetic that was more athletic and not just your standard prosthetic, let's say? Is there, or do they start you off with, because you're an athletic guy, they go, okay, we're going to fit you with the a specific type of prosthetic. Yeah, so the, the knee that I'm wearing literally right now is the same exact type that I was given day one, right? Okay. Which is the most advanced, the most durable, the most athletic uh, knee on the market. So I started okay. out in this, I've obviously broken like dozens and dozens right. of them at this point, but I started out in an advanced knee. Okay. No. I didn't know how that worked, you know, I mean, honestly, because had we have, have we advanced enough where, and not only that, but cost and everything, where you're fitted with something that's going to fit your lifestyle? Or is it, you know, because I think back in the day, it wasn't the case. You know, you, you end up getting something and then it was not matching your lifestyle. And then eventually somebody donated or whatever, a more athletic prosthetic. Yeah. That's why I asked that. Yeah, and I'm you know, I'm fortunate because the the research and development funding and process skyrocketed post 9-11. Like pre-9-11, mm -hmm. like the Vietnam era guys were dealing with just this rudimentary, archaic looking prosthetics. Yeah. A lot of them were coming through Wall Street while I was there and getting outfitted with some of this newer tech oh, that cool. was coming out. Yeah. And I'm looking at the shit that these guys have, and it's literally like belt buckles yes, that's that are what I'm strapped to this guy's leg and right. a piece of wood yeah. with a stump on the bottom of it for a literal, foot. Literal peg leg. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the guys that came before me, long before me, that, you know, were amputees, mm -hmm. they are the ones that paved the way to facilitate right. me being where I am now. Because you remove hundreds and hundreds of guys that lost limbs, this technology doesn't exist right now. Yeah, that's the only reason why it it, it became the way it is now. So, um, were you the first guy to ever have that less of a femur be fit with prosthetics? No, no, no. Okay, no, not not by any stretch. I mean, they they have guys that don't that are hip disarticulations that have prosthetics. Mm -hmm. Crazy challenging. Right, because now yeah. you've lost three joints, which is really the big difference. So, um, and you were only four inches from that. Yeah, so like I have just enough stump mm -hmm. for a socket to attach to to really function as an above the knee amputee. Right, but um, 
I'm a prosthetist nightmare. You know, when I like anatomically, it's a challenge because mm-hmm. of what my leg is consist of and what the rest of my body is. But then when you add in the things that I decide I, we're going to do here, right? They're like, uh, we, so they really had to think outside the box yeah. with me. All my prosthetists. Yeah, this is all uncharted territory for them. Yeah, we all had to get creative with solutions, yeah. you know, because I go to my prosthetic guy now, even just right. I'm like, here's the deal. I'm going on this training thing. I need a leg that I can jump out of a plane with, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to splash in the ocean. I'm going to get in a boat. Yeah. I'm going to splash off that. I'm going to do a subsurface. It's like 007 in the basement kind of thing with the guy that right? hooked him up with the weapons and everything. Yeah, yeah, only with legs. <laughs> right, yeah. you know, right. Or different attachments. Yeah. And then I'm going to clear a beach, then I'm going to go climb a mountain, all <laughs> yeah. in the same event. So you got four of them in your ruck. That's yeah. what it ends up looking like. Yeah. You know, so wow. just these different attachments. and you That's know, crazy. How do I carry it and how do I put it on and off and quickly? So, the, But the process I've had, man, th- even though I'm a pain in the ass, they all love it because they, they do the same things most of the time, right? But then I right. come in and they're like, wow, it really pushes their capability yeah. a little bit and they got to get creative and Think about what you're doing solve. for the next guy, though. You know, I mean, what you're pushing them to think of and that creativity is going to help that next guy who might be in a very similar situation be that much further ahead. Yeah, we're driving into. I'd like to think so. Yeah, you know when I got no, back, you are. I got back from my Somalia deployment in 2016. I wrecked six of these legs, and this thing is yeah. supposed to be the most durable, well-rounded knee there is. I yeah. broke six of them, sent them all back to the manufacturer, and they're out in Germany. I get a phone call, and it's my prosthetist from Walter Reed, and he said, "Hey, I got the chief engineer from Autobach <laughs> on the That's phone. Awesome. He wants wow. to talk to you." And I said, "Okay." I get on the phone. This guy's like, "Hey, man, this is me. I'm looking at all your legs." Um, like, what are you doing to these things? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I described like the environment and the terrain and he said, and they love the fact that I beat the hell out of these things, sure. right? Cause it pushes them. So because of literally, because of that deployment, they, they realized that the issue was with the internal filter and the, the dust and the clay, particularly in okay. Eastern Africa was getting inside the components and messing up the computer right. and the hydraulics. So because of that one deployment with me, they were able to increase the internal filter of the knee yeah. to make it just more that much more durable. Damn, man, you just, wow. you, know, you don't think about the complexity here of what we're describing, you know? I mean, holy cow. You yeah. gotta worry about the chip, everything is in. Yep. Yeah, so it's got a microprocessor. Get out of here. So Yeah, so you charge it, you know, <laughs> give it power, and then it does its thing, you know? So if you need replacements or if you need anything, or is the VA pretty good about getting what you need right now? I don't work with the VA. Yeah, no, no, he's still on active duty. duty. Yeah, yeah, I haven't. I don't. So we're getting there. (laughs) Don's like, what the hell? (laughs) Put put your mic closer, Don, because you're gonna have to. (laughs) But yeah, no, we gotta uh, we gotta get to that point. So here you are. You're coming out of uh, Walter Reed. Did they come to you and say, "Hey, it's it's time for you to"? Obviously, they must have talked to you about medical discharge at this point. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that conversation didn't really happen until I got back to Fort Bragg. Okay, so you get a chance to go back to the unit. Yep, I go back to third group at Bragg after a year at Walter Reed, and uh, you know I walk in. That must have been pretty awesome for you, just to walk back in the door. I'll tell you, it was awesome to be home, Yeah. but I felt a ton of pressure um, because I'm still early on in my recovery. You know, I'm, I'm able to walk unassisted meaning without a cane right but i'm hobbling i'm limping you know i'm my strength has come back but i'm not anything close to my former self so a lot of these guys are seeing me for the first time in a year 
and I was concerned about their perception of me because I knew I was about to tell them I'm going back to the team. And now here I am, 50 pounds lighter, hobbling, right? right? I'm like this cripple. So I, had, I felt a lot of pressure to exude this like strength all the time, which ended up weighing on me quite a bit. Yeah. But I end up getting back and I walk in, I sit down with my company, my battalion, and my group command all at the same time. And some of those guys had switched out, um, so it's, right. it's new faces right. who had heard of me. I knew some of them, but, and they're like, hey, welcome back, you know, how you doing? Good, yep, small talk. They said, cool, like, what, what's your plan, man? And I told them, I said, I'm going back to the team. Yeah. And there was just this like pause in the room, like no one said anything. And I could just feel like the angst. And I don't know what they're gonna say. They may be like, no, you're not. Your, your days in the army are over. I have no clue. Right. And they're like, okay, um, cool. Like when is that gonna happen? And I said, well, I need some time. Like I, I, right. I had a lot of work to do, you know, physically especially, but that's the ultimate goal. In the meantime, I'd like to work as a combatives instructor. You know, I, grew, I was doing combatives, jiu-jitsu, MMA for a long time. It was a great fit, and they granted me that request. Here is where the, the med board conversation comes up, because it was inevitable, mm -hmm. right? Because I'm on mm -hmm. a permanent profile. It triggers a med board automatically. Yep, P3. Okay. Yep, yep, P3. So I know it's coming, and not long after I'm home, a week or two, I get hit up by, you know, the, my Peb, Pueblo, Peblo, just kind yeah. of the person that kind of quarterbacks you through a med board. Yep. And he's like, hey, this is me. Um, your med board's gonna, gonna begin, whatever. Mm -hmm. We go sit down in his office and I tell him, like, I'm, I'm not getting out of the army. And yeah. he's like, yeah, you probably are. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay, and I see where this is going. So I end up firing that guy. <laughs> Um, and if, I didn't know you could do that. I yeah. didn't know you could do that either. Yeah. <laughs> How did you do Can you that? do that? So yeah. I, or did you just do it? I threw a complete and total temper tantrum okay. in this guy's office about three or four days later because he just wasn't on the same page as me. Yeah. You know, he was you know, trying like, to convince you to accept the. the he was focused on my the, transition process. Yeah, and you know, I really can't blame him because no. um, I'd say most of the soldiers, service members going through a med board want yeah. to get out. Yeah, sure. yeah right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They've either accepted it or they literally just want to be done and this is the way that they're getting out. Yeah. So that process really is tailored towards getting you out of the army. Yeah, and that's what it is. They're gonna evaluate you medically and deem you fit or unfit to continue serving. Correct. Yeah. So I, I, wasn't, I wasn't happy with my service. Um, I flipped out childishly, ended up in the office of the supervisor and I said, I, I need you to put me with somebody who is on the same page with me because this is what's happening. Yeah. He ended up linking me up with this girl. Her name was Rachel. I'll never forget. And uh, she was awesome. And she's like, let's get you back to third group. And I'm like, yes. Like, Ooh. you're my girl. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. Right? So we go through the process. It takes about eight months. Yeah. Six, seven months to get through the entire med board. Are you getting discouraged at this point? No, because I am already training up to get back to the team. Gotcha. Like, the med yeah. board was like an afterthought. It was like, I'd have to go up to this appointment. I'd go, I'd show up, yeah. answer some questions. Otherwise, though, you still felt like you have a purpose now. Oh, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm out of my mind obsessed with getting back to the team at yeah. this point. Right. So I'm working as an instructor, teaching classes every day, and then I'm training two, three, or four times a day in addition to that. Like, my life became nothing but training to go back to the team. Everything else was removed, including people, like relationships. If you were a distraction, you were gone. Like I was completely and totally all in. There was no plan B. 
to the point when eventually when I started going through this kind of pipeline that my unit put together, part of that was a, another psyche valve because I think that my leadership actually thought I was crazy. Like, we need to get this guy medically evaluated because <laughs> psychologically he may have a real problem here. Because yeah. he's like... It was the blood transfusion. <laughs> something's yeah. off with this dude. Mm -hmm. But the med board was just, you know, it was, it was just a formality I was doing when I needed to, but I really didn't give it much thought. I was found unfit for duty, which wasn't a surprise. They look right. at your MOS. They look at all these physical requirements. Yeah. I'm an it's SF It's pretty guy. much too a one file or, you know, your, your military record file against your... your Physical file, your, you know, what am I trying to say? Your, um, your profile. profile. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, they're just looking at pretty much documentation. Did you show up? I showed up. Yeah. And they got my records. They've got the list of physical requirements to be an 18 Bravo. Mm -hmm. And she's asking me, can you do this? Can you do this? You know, can you run five miles in under 40 minutes? Can you do yeah. a 12 mile ruck march in under three hours? Like whatever they are. Right. And I'm going, no, 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 not yeah. yet. I will be able to, but no, the answer is no. And she's like, okay, the Army's gonna find you unfit for duty. And I yeah. said, okay, well, what options do I have? And that was when I was introduced to the COAD process, which stands for continuation on active duty, right? And it basically is uh, an option that moves the onus or the risk from the department of the Army to your unit. So the Army can say you're unfit for duty as right. per DA Army standards. Your unit can say, we want to retain him anyway. What's, what, what is the lowest level of the unit? Are we talking for Special Forces Command? This came from the third group commander. Okay. So an 06 had to sign a memo that said, I am aware that Nick is unfit for duty. However, third group wants to retain him. <clears throat> Submit. So it took me like six months or so to get through a med board. It took six days for my co-ed to be approved. Nice. Right. Six. Any questions from the old man when you went? Did you go see him? The, the six, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Any, any pushback or concern from him at that moment when you... Was it more like an interviewed, you know, kind of thing, just trying to see where your head's at? That, no, that was pretty, that was pretty chill. Um, I don't think he fully grasped at that point that I, he was going to have to make the decision on whether or not to put me back on the team or not. Mm, yeah. But he f saw value in me to some degree. Yeah. Well, that may not be a, a team guy anymore, but he's like, no, like yeah. we want you. You still have value here. It was pretty cut and dry. Once I started going through the process to get back on the team, right? So about eight months goes by, med board complete, co-ad complete. I'm working as an instructor. Eight months goes by while I'm back at third group and I decide I'm ready to take a shot at getting back on the team. So I make that clear to my leadership. I said, what do I gotta do? Now is this like a, I'm sorry it keeps stopping you, but is this like a, when we're talking about this lead up to this point, is this a go, no go, or is this a, you know, just not ready, we'll let you go a little bit longer? In my mind it was go, no go. Okay. Yeah, this was- In was, the command's mind, did you shot. ever have an idea whether they were go, no go, or? <laughs> I think, well, I know, having talked to some of these guys again later, was they assumed at some point they would ask me to do something that I would be unable to do, or, and or I would just decide that this is not a good idea. I, I, right. I just talking to you for what one hour and forty-seven minutes. I don't get that idea that that would ever cross your mind. 
It wasn't in my mind. <laughs> yeah. you know, no, no. <laughs> no, I mean, quitting is not an option. No, again, yeah. like there, again, there's there's no plan B, man. This yeah, was yeah. what was happening, yeah. one way or another, or it was going to kill me, and that was it. I was obsessed, and there really wasn't this laid out pipeline for me to follow. Right. Yeah. My command just kind of started throwing these tasks at me. They said, "Okay, go do a standard, you know, APFT, Army Physical Fitness Test." Go so it was just one off, and then you maybe a period of time before you did another exercise. Ended so up being about once a week or okay. so, once every other week. It took about twelve weeks total for me to go through this process. Do you and find that was more helpful than all at one time? You know, that maybe your standard guy would still have to go do a five mile, you know, road march. You have to do a I mean, it was pretty. It was pretty back to back. Like I would, I would do one event, and then I'd have a few days, or maybe a week, yeah. and then I would do the next one, and then I would do the next one. But I didn't really know what they were going to be until oh, like so a couple days before. Right? Okay. I knew of one that third group actually created at the time. It was called the return to duty test or assessment, and they literally built an assessment for wounded guys that wanted to go back to operational status because third group suffered so many casualties right. in Afghanistan this whole time. So they built this, this, this test. I knew that was coming, but the ones prior to that were just kind of getting thrown at me. So physical test, a proficiency evaluation, a psych evaluation, week after week, and I'm just you know, I'm knocking these things out. And that was when you could almost feel the tension around the unit where these commanders are like, we may actually have to like make a decision on this. Like this dude yeah. just keeps doing shit. Like when's yeah. he gonna stop? Like what's going on? You know what I mean? And uh, once I got to that last, so 12 weeks goes by, 12, 14 different types of assessments, and I take this last physical fitness test. The day before I walk in the gym, and I had been training for this test specifically for several weeks, because it's not, you know, go run two miles. It's like athletic combat style exercises. Oh, like the events. drag uh, type of thing? Drags, jumping over walls, yep, moving right. different cover positions. Yep. And so I've been training specifically for some of these events. The day before I got to take this test, I walk in the gym and the group command sergeant major is laid out on the turf and he had just taken the, the test. He took it alongside my buddy Chuck yeah. who had taken a round through his hand and was trying to go back to a team. They just did it together. Yeah. I walk in, they're both just laid out on the, on the turf in the, in the gym. And I'm like, hey, sergeant major, how you doing? He's like, hey, I'm good. How you doing? Good. He's like, man, that test, that, that thing sucks. He's like, yeah. you ready to do this tomorrow? And I said, yeah. And he's like, all right, man, like, I'm going to be here. So sure enough, the next day comes, and there's like 60 people at this thing, like all echelons of command. My teammates are there. There's like a whole cow, bunch man. of dudes, and they're just Like they rolled me. in the bleachers and the whole thing type of thing? <laughs> yeah, they shut the gym down because no one else could train while I was in there, and they're just following me from one event to the next, 12 events total, all of them done with a 50-pound vest. Yeah. And you just go back to back to back to back to back. And I get done with the last, the last event. And I'm standing there. And I'm peripheral vision is like gone at this point. Right. I'm on the verge of passing out. out. Like I am done. <laughs> and I'm trying to look tough. Like I could do it again if I needed to, you know, yeah. which I couldn't. And uh, group CSM comes over, who had just taken the day before. And he said, you know what, dude? You know, I just took this test yesterday and it kicked my ass. If I was not here to witness you do this with my own two eyes, I would not believe that that was possible. Yeah. And this is at, after 12 weeks of assessments. And I said, you know, CSM, I appreciate it, but like, 
are you going to put me back on the team? <laughs> yeah, that's all like, I want to like, know. What else? Hey, this is great conversation, however. Yeah, like, what else do you need me to do here, man? <laughs> yeah. And he looks over at the group commander, the guy that approved my co-ad. Yeah. And he said, and the, the group commander says, hey, CSM, you know, this is your call, but yeah. I don't know how you're going to tell this dude no after what we just put him, what we just put him through. So my CSM's like, yeah, you'll have, you'll have your orders tomorrow. You know, so I was back on the team wow. like two days later. Yeah. Which was cool, right? Like walking, yeah. spraying beers on each other, high-fiving, right? And then, then reality set in yeah. very quickly because we were about a month out from oh. being back in Afghanistan. Okay. So things got real. Real quick. Real quick. <laughs> and uh, I said, great. I just made it to the top of this mountain, and yeah. now I'm at the bottom of another one. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I got a lot of work to do. Yeah, so when you walk in the door, they've already been training three or four months for this? More like six or seven. So you've got a month to get a crash course and get caught up. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like my skills and my capacity as an 18 Bravo really weren't all that diminished, but I needed to get into out of the, the gym mode. training environment and more into a war fighting environment because yeah. we were going back into a direct action CT mission. Damn. Right? So yeah. it was game time in a month. And... I had been focused on, you know, training in the gym because yeah. that's where I was being evaluated. <clears throat> and it really hit me very quickly that I had so much to learn. I had so many gaps in my game, most of which I didn't recognize until I got to Afghanistan. And just simple things like getting in and out of a Mat V, getting in and out of an Omni vehicle. Like, how do I even oh, yeah. do this? Yeah, yeah. You know, those things aren't built for like comfort right. and convenience. Yeah. Right. right. So it's like, how do I physically? How am I going to get in and out of this vehicle, especially quickly? Right. So small stuff like that. And I'm in Afghanistan. We're conducting ops. We're training. Yeah. And in my downtime, I would spend drilling tasks like that. Yeah. And like literally getting in and out of a truck was something I did just thousands of times. My teammates were competing against me. They were videotaping me. I'm yeah. watching the reel. I'm on a stopwatch. You know, I'm like, yeah. well, if I put my hand here, I put my left foot here. Does that shave off a second or two? And I'm just going over and over and over and over and over again until right. I find a technique that works. And, and you have to, because you might have to jump out and grab a casualty like that. Like right. You got, like, you got to do it. There's you like got, no margin of error. Right. Amazing, man. Yeah, so, so that, that trip back as an amputee, which was in 2015, my first amputee deployment, was just, I mean, nonstop you know, right. for six months because I really didn't give myself any downtime because I had so much to learn and I was so worried about being a liability on the team that I just felt I needed to just be working constantly. Did the, did the thought or the apprehension ever in your mind that like I could have a similar injury again and go through this whole process again and maybe I shouldn't have made the choice to come back here or was that just, you kind of bury that? I wasn't concerned about myself, right. but I was concerned about the boys. Okay. And as I was going through that eval process, right, I knocked out maybe five or six of them I was doing, I was doing good and I'm crushing it. And I'm like, yeah. I'm feeling really confident. I wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat and it dawned on me that up until that point, it had been all about me right. and what I wanted to do and, you know, proving the naysayers wrong, proving myself right. Like all that stuff, ego, mm -hmm. pride, stubbornness, competitiveness. That's what was fueling me, right? It was the, no one's going to dictate my future, but me mentality. Right. And it got me through a lot of really high times. And it hit me that I was trying to go back to a team that had 11 other guys on it with families and they'll be putting their lives into my hands. Yeah. 
And is this what's in the best interest of those guys? And it scared the shit out of me. I didn't sleep the rest of the night. The next day, I bomb into work, and I get right in front of these guys, and I'm like, is this what's in the best interest of the guys? Like, I, I don't know. Right. I'm so obsessed, I can't see. Like, my blinders are on. I can't objectively analyze this. I need you guys to, 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 to do that for me. And they're like, dude, we don't know if this is going to work, but we want you to keep going, and we'll just be very candid and yeah. honest about this. And if you get back to the team and it just isn't going to work, then it just isn't going to work. Yeah. And I said, okay, that's fair. So, you know, every now and then we'd have these little kind of come to Jesus sit downs like, hey, like, are you guys cool with me on this op? Yeah. Because um, if not, I'm not going. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how, how many times outside the wire did you, you and the teammates finally start getting some confidence that, hey, you know what? We've gone through enough scenarios now that I'm good. Yeah. Um, probably maybe a dozen or so. Yeah. And even, even in that, there were a handful that were just, it just didn't look right for me to be a part of, which is brutal to not be on the task organization right. for an option. So you tapped out. You would look at it and go, I'm tapping out. My team sergeant and I would come together before every single op and yeah. look at the terrain, look at the objective, and just have a conversation before every single operation we had. And everyone that I didn't go on, I told him up front, I don't think this is a good idea. And he said, I don't think it is either. Yeah. I said, okay. And that just, oh, man, that's it's brutal. Yeah. Right. To do that, but I owed that to the guys. Like there's just no room for right. that. You know what yeah. I mean? So it started off slow, like easy, easy terrain, comparably. And then through right. the course of a six month deployment, thing, you know, as I got stronger, more tactically sound, and I'm working all these little tasks in between stuff, then I started going on more and more, you know, aggressive things. Yeah. But from their perspective, you were you were started keeping your weight, holding your own, you know, obviously. Because they yeah. would have probably came to you, it sounds like, because you were so open to them to say, hey, man, Nick, I, don't, I just don't think this is the right thing, man. Yep. You know? Yeah, and it had to be, you know, that way. I, I placed my trust in them yeah. and said, because I, I can't see it, boys. Like, I want to be with you guys constantly. Right. So, you know, I, I, I may be able to objectively analyze this a little bit, but I need you guys to no bullshit come and say, hey, dude, like, we don't think this is a good idea. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they did. Yeah. So you were a six at this time. E6? I was an E6. Yes. When did I pin E7? Yeah. I was an E6 in okay. 2015. So you still, time. you did go to seven. I did. Okay. When did you cross over uh, to warrant officer? 2019. So this was 15. Mm -hmm. So did you go all the way up to eight? No. Okay. I was at kind of the crossroads where I was at my first look for eight. And then I went warrant. Yeah. Why'd you go warrant? <sighs> More team time uh, is certainly on the on the list. Didn't want to be a team sergeant. I think the team sergeant is the greatest job in the world. It's the most influential position on the team by far, but it's short lived. Mm. It's two years, and then you're done. Yeah. Your operational time is done, yeah. and now you basically become a tool not just for SF, but for the army at large, and you're doing the first sergeant stuff, and you're getting groomed yep. for sergeant, sergeant major, major, and yeah. you know, it just goes into staff land really quick. So it's like the greatest two years ever, and then you're kind of done. You go warrant, that's five more years on the team as a warrant. So it just resets your clock, 
it protects you from getting sent to SWIC to work as an instructor. Right. Yeah. So team time was certainly in the equation for my decision making. So you making. didn't ever see that even SWIC monster catching up with you at E6 or E7 then? It was getting close. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it got close, yeah, before my 2016 deployment. It was a real senior team, and I probably would have gotten plucked, me and a few of the other guys on that team, if we hadn't gotten the mission that we got. You know, we got the Somalia mission, and that was the only kinetic mission because their group had transferred back to Africa yeah. at this point. Yeah. All the teams were working out west doing basically advise assist stuff. There was one mission in Somalia for an ODA, and we got that. And that's what protected the senior guys that otherwise would have probably gotten chewed up by the SWIC monster. Yeah. So four years there in between. How many more deployments? How many more deployments? From the time that you came back. from As an amputee? Yep. Five? Five deployments. Wow. I just got back from my last one in July. Wow. Progressively, how is like getting back into a rhythm and being as close to 100%? It's just different. Yeah. You know? How so? It's just, like <clears throat> life as an amputee is, is, it becomes the new normal, I guess, but I still have a lot to learn on, on how to function and do stuff. You know what I mean? I think that's just because I just keep raising the, I just keep raising the bar, you know, and, and looking at that next thing. You know, like dive school was just last year. Right? Wait, so you I went was, to dive school? Yeah. You know, and I was the first <laughs> amputee to go to dive school, right? Which is widely considered the most physically and mentally yeah. challenging Toughest, school yeah. in the military. Right. And so that became like the next evolution of my physical Were you going to a dive team or you just went to the school? I got assigned to a dive team once I graduated the warrant course. Okay. Which is unusual. Most dive team warrants were divers yeah. before, right? It's uncommon for a warrant officer to go to dive school. Why you? The, the team that I was assigned to, when I graduated the warrant course, at this point I'm in fifth group, I met with my company command and then I met with my battalion command separately. And within the first five minutes of both of those conversations, they both told me, you're not expected to go to dive school. We don't even think you're allowed to go to dive school. <laughs> But we're putting you on this team because they're a bunch of senior savages that will only respond to a real strong leader. And we have two options, you and this other guy that just graduated the Warren course, and he's not an option for this team. So just it was a hyper-aggressive alpha team, and they wanted strong leadership. And I told them, like, okay, but I'm going to go to dive school. And they kind of also looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> sure. And they say, okay, good luck figuring that out. We don't think that's even allowed. Yeah, yeah. And then became like both the physical train up for it and then the administrative fight right. to get approval to go, you know, battle that thing out. Yeah. And then, yeah. Was there anything in the regs that said that you couldn't? In other words, had, they, has a re had the regs caught up with amputees? Not amputee specifically, but yeah. I did need a medical waiver because I was on a permanent profile. Ah. Gotcha. So, ironically as it is. Wait, I'm, you're still on a P3 at this point? Yes. I'll always you be always on a P3. Be. Oh, we, you always will. Unless my leg grows back, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, I needed approval from the first special force, from the USASOC, USASOC? It might have been first special forces command surgeon, right? That was who had to approve my waiver. And I fill it out and it gets sent up and I'm waiting to hear back. My dive physical's complete. I'm good to go medically. 
and I get a phone call on my cell phone, some random Fort Bragg number. I pick it up, and there's just this wild man on the other end of the phone just yelling. And I thought someone had dialed my phone number by accident. And this guy's going, do you know what I'm looking at right now? I am looking at a medical waiver for an amputee who wants to go to dive school. And I think I'm overhearing a conversation between- That's what it sounds like, yeah. And someone else. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going, hello, hello. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I'm literally eavesdropping on a conversation about me. Yeah, like, how yeah. does this happen? It's a party line, yeah. Turns out that, no, this guy called me directly and it was the, now he's a full board colonel. At the time, he was an 05. He was the third group surgeon and was the first guy that operated on me in Afghanistan. And he know that was you? Oh, he knew it was me. Oh. Yeah, and he's a, he's a crazy person. That was person. too cool. Yeah, so yeah. He, he's the one that now has to approve my waiver. So I, 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 I would say I caught a little bit of luck administratively. Yeah, yeah. And I'm right. talking to this guy, and I'm like, oh, Doc, what's up, man? And he's like, do you seriously want to go to dive school? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, all right. I'm like, are you going to approve it? He's like, yeah, I already approved it. I think you're out of your mind, but yeah, you can go if you want to. I'm like, okay. So it, it got approved. You know? <laughs> oh my wow. God, that's crazy. And then just became the physical, you know, train up, which was excruciating. Well, but you're breaking down barriers. I mean, typically, you know, definitely back in the day and probably even now, P3s are not look very favorably. So the fact that you are a permanent, you're a disabled person on active duty, you're automatically breaking down barriers that don't look, don't judge the book. Don't automatically assume I'm not capable of being a soldier. Yeah, man, it's a great point and something that I've taken on. It's in the, it's in the background for now, but our medical disqualifying conditions are so outdated that it's sad. And yeah. there are so many conventional military guys that I was at Walter Reed with, yeah. amputees, that wanted to stay in and they couldn't. Yeah. And it was, it's a. I was a P3 for my neck. I yeah. spent my last eight years or so being a P3. And I still did all the physical stuff and everything, but, but the fact that I, had, I still had that on there because in order to stay in the Army, I had to go through a medical board. Right. Of course, coming out of the medical board, they gave me a P3. So that's why I'm saying, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, Dude, you're breaking down a lot of barriers and a lot of walls by doing this kind of stuff, which, of course, some of that you already know. But, I mean, I'm saying is even the P3 part of it, as far as I'm concerned, you know. Yeah. And you know what? I don't I don't particularly care if I'm labeled as a P3 forever. But it's just what does that mean what that someone it, can do? That's right. That's and right. that's where I think. If you're just looking at a record, change. oh, he's, he's a P3, you know. Right. And even even qualifications to enlist, or to, yeah. to enter the military, right? Yeah. Like, Myself and many others have demonstrated what is possible. And in today's world, when you've got both general interest in joining the military on the decline, and you've got those that meet the standards who are even allowed to join the military also on the decline, it's an unsustainable system, right? right. You need every single person who can provide value. Yeah. And if someone's missing a limb or if someone has eczema yeah, that yeah. disqualifies them from military yep. service, like, are you kidding me? Yeah. Right? Like, these laws and policies were written so long ago. They were. Right? Technology, medication have come light years since then. Yep. Like, let's update this a little bit. Yep. Recognize the value and take whoever we can to serve, as long as they 100%. can serve. Right? Yeah. No, I, t I totally agree with that. And so, you know. Again, I think that's uh, tremendous. So let's take it to the dive school. So you go to dive school, you you arrive as you are. Mm -hmm. I mean, these instructors had to be thinking, "I wait, somebody screwed up here," you know. 
Yeah, so the leadership down at dive school, um, are the commander and the sergeant major are both third group guys. So I knew both of them. Okay, okay, all right, that's good. It is good. It's good to have a network. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they were... Did you phone them ahead of time? Dude, I'm coming. Yeah, I was talking to them. Okay. Um, I wanted to take that temperature on how how the cadre would respond. Sure. And, you know, there were... The, the dive school is very procedural, right, for safety purposes. It's like left foot here, right foot here. It's by the numbers. And obviously some of that wouldn't apply to me. If it's right. like, put your right foot here, I don't have one. Like, okay, well, what, now what am I doing? Right. Right. So I needed to find a way before I got there mm -hmm. to train even small things like Too entering standard. in the water and out of the water. Right. right. How do I meet the safety and operational standard? Although I need to modify some of it a little bit because I'm missing a leg. Sure. Right. So I needed to get on the same page as for my train up to cut down that learning curve for mm -hmm. both myself and the instructors right. once I got there. So that was really what I was talking to the leadership down there about. Yeah. Once I got there, they all stayed. They didn't even speak to me the entire six weeks I was there. They didn't want it to show like there was any kind of bias. Sure. Right. Or I was getting any kind of preference. You didn't want that either. Which I wouldn't have accepted. Yeah, right. Right. So it was a learning process for myself and for the cadre because they were teaching me something that they really had never taught before, at least a specific technique. Mm -hmm. Right. You know what I mean? So, and I, I mean, I was blade running for six weeks. I was hanging on by a thread. I mean, I barely made it past that it it damn near killed me um, well the course is kind of that way anyway it's designed almost to kill you and yeah. i pushed that envelope to the max <laughs> and you know made it on the back end you know so wow you know. Uh, so did you end up going halo or anything as well not yet not yet that could be the next that could be the next <laughs> endeavor yeah could be the next would endeavor, that require yeah. a different prosthetic coming in so hot you know and well i mean i guess Possibly. you could flare out but yeah, I mean, hey, MFF landings tend to be softer. So yeah. I'm still an airborne status. Yeah. I still jump. I do have a knee static and a leg line. that I wear, a static line, yeah, right. that has a lot of impact um, forgiveness built into it. Mm -hmm. I got a question. Your prosthetic, is it improved or is it, is it an improved landing compared to a, a parachute landing fall? Yeah, without? on your hip and everything too, especially. On my one that I jump with? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it still su it sucks. Okay, so it's yeah. not it's not like it's no mechanical. Advantage. No, no okay. special parachute or anything. No, I got a special no, leg parachute, but. that is only used to land. Yeah, and then I need to swap it out with one that I can actually walk in. So when it's literally just built for me to hit the ground okay. like a bag of doorknobs, <laughs> and hopefully nothing breaks. And then uh, I swap it out with the one I can actually move off the DZ on. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's awesome, man. <laughs> yeah, water awesome. jumps is where it's at. Yeah, water jumps is where it's yeah. at. I think it, the water is nice. Regardless of how many legs you have, water yeah. jumps are where it's at. Water jumps is the way to go. Wait, yeah. Do you use what? Do you, what about the prosthetic in that uh, sense? Same one. So I'll usually just use the same one I'm in now. Okay. Yeah, this one's waterproof. So <laughs> unless I'm jumping into the ocean and then need to actually fin, then I would jump in my actual finning setup. Mm. Okay. So I can just splash, set my fin, awesome. and then stop moving out. That's fucking yeah. cool. That's you know. just. just Awesome. There's different attachments, man. That's amazing. No problem then, I guess, using, obviously, you made it to the schoolhouse. So, I mean, using that prosthetic to Scooby-Doo. So, the quick story is I was given a fin while I was training up for dive school. And 
it ended up being what we'll call substandard equipment. Mm. But a typical meathead right. soldier, I'm like, I'm going to make this work. Roger that. Yeah. Like, I'm just driving on. So I used this little tiny fin. We called it my Finding Nemo fin because it was so small. <laughs> the concern was that the longer the lever, the more propulsion you can get. Yeah. But if it's too long and I'm generating too much force, it'll rip the prosthetic off of my body. Oh, jeez, I didn't think about that because the, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, this thing's held on by suction on oh, yeah. my stump. So if I'm going, plus there's water involved. So we went with the much safer option, which was a really short fin, but it was stable to my body. But it didn't give me any propulsion really at all. Yeah. I used that for all my train up, for pre-scuba, and the first few weeks of dive school, where I basically was just going off of one leg as my propulsion. Once I made it past one man, the one man competency test, which is kind of at the precipice of dive school, which is where most people get dropped from the course, after that is when you actually start diving, right? So I made it through that, and the commander down there reached out to this nonprofit. This nonprofit called Combat Wounded Veterans something, Adventure Challenge, Combat Wounded Veterans Challenge. And they focus on water sports for amputees, for combat vets. Every year they go down to Key West and they use the schoolhouse in their pool to train up the guys, outfit them with equipment, get yeah. them on a fin, get them finning, and they take them in the ocean, they go scuba diving. The commander calls this group and says, hey man, we've got an amputee student who just made it past one man. He's about to start nav diving. The fin he's on is garbage and we need to get him something better. The next day, they fly four dudes down, prosthetists, an engineer, and another amputee wow. who does a lot of water sports. They all fly in with a truckload of prosthetic equipment. So I spend like four hours in the pool with them one night just trying different prosthetics. And these, these are prosthetics that they typically use for their nonprofit and this event. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, specifically for diving. Yeah. So I end up on a much stronger setup. Right? Did they design it or did they just give you pick one of those uh, type of thing? It was kind of, it was both. Yeah. I mean, they literally built it right there in front of me. Oh, that's awesome. So that's they really build it right cool. there and I'm in the pool. I'm trying different, different things, back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, for like four hours. Um, because the issue is when you're diving underwater, you're going off of a compass. You shoot your bearing and that's where you go. Well, my propulsion was so off that I was drifting. Mm -hmm. right. right. Yeah, which is just like any other land nav or any type of navigation, you know, land nav. Yeah. You drift, you got to make correction. Right. Yeah. Well, when you can't see where you're trying to go, you right, just go off you can't compass. Shoot. Right. I'm off, I'm off axis. Yeah. So we do our first nav dives, like 500 meters, short dives, and I'm way off. And I'm like trying to figure out, this is before I know that this team is on the way. I'm like, how do I offset and correct? But you start yeah. talking tides and currents. Yeah. And it's like impossible mathematical right. equation. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this because you have to, you have to successfully nav 1,500 meters and hit your target to move forward in the course. That's my next challenge. Okay. And I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Well, this team shows up. I get outfitted with something that actually gives me some propulsion. And now I'm like ready to go, right? So it's the, the first time I get to use it is the day of my... It was the day of my test. Holy cow. Yeah. So I'm like... Other than this, you've been just swimming like maybe 30-meter pool or something. Just I did, to test I did a 500-meter on it, and I did a 
Oh, so you did oh, get a chance pool. to use This was the only time I'd done it was in the pool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm yeah. talking, yeah. So you're just doing short distances. Really just short distances. Yeah. Right? So the next day, I'm sorry, we do a 1,000 meter, which was the last attempt we had before our test, which was 1,500. My senior instructor <laughs> decides he's going to be my dive buddy. When you dive, you're physically attached by a lanyard to somebody else. He's like, I'm going to dive with you because I think you are going to be flying across the bottom of the ocean with this new fin yeah. because your left leg is so strong. We give you something right. for your right leg. You're going to be, it's like you have a rocket up your ass. So I'm going right. to dive with you so you don't kill your dive buddy. Right. So I said, cool. So we splash. I'm diving with an, with an instructor now. Yeah. How deep are you? Underwater? Yeah. 20 feet. 20 feet. Yeah. We're, we're going. I'm on course. I'm just doing my thing, finning. I can feel the power that I have out, the, out of my new prosthetic. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Yeah. Right? So I'm so it's moving. A noticeable difference. I can tell I'm moving. Right? That's cool. He yanks me. He gives me the ascent signal. Uh, something's wrong. We go up to the surface. I'm like, you good? What's up? You know, I'm on a closed circuit rig, which means you can't talk. It's a whole bunch of technical stuff. doesn't matter. Something's wrong with, with the instructor. And I'm yeah. thinking something's wrong with this rig. We keep splashing, keep trying. I get another 40, 50 meters. We go back up, yeah. back down, another 100 meters, back up, back down. I get maybe 500 meters in. So halfway through the dive, we surface again. Now yeah. I'm all off axis. I'm all effed up. My time is effed up. Damn it, Sergeant Major. I'm like, what's going on, man? And he's like, we're done. Um, we get picked up by the boats and we go yeah. in. So I think his rig was just jacked up. I'm uh -huh. like, great, because tomorrow is my test. And yeah. I don't even know what my time was, what my accuracy was like. <laughs> right. Turns out his rig was fine. He, he just couldn't, couldn't keep, keep up. up with me. <laughs> yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> so I see him after and I'm like, hey, dive soup. Well, what was wrong with your rig? He's like, nothing. He's like, I just checked it out. My rig was fine. I'm like, well, what was the problem? He's like, I couldn't keep up with you. I'm like, wow. no. And he's a stud. Yeah. I mean, he has two legs. All he does. <laughs> he's, he's, yeah. he's a chief instructor. <laughs> I'm like, no. He's like, yeah. He's like, dude, you are cooking. Yeah. And I said, holy shit. Okay. He's like, listen, I know you had, you, I, I totally screwed you out of your test, your warm up today. Right. Tomorrow's the test. If you fail it, you have a retest the day after, which is what every student gets. So you have two chances. I said, okay. We're in the classroom. He tells the entire class what just happened. He's yeah. like, listen, whoever's diving with Nick tomorrow, like, good luck. Because <laughs> he just kicked my ass, dragged me across the bottom of the ocean for 500 meters. So we, everybody had straws at that point? Like, <laughs> so my, my poor dive buddy is like, oh, shit. Yeah. So I don't know how I'm going to do, right? Yeah. Test day comes around, right? And it's based on time and accuracy. So if I'm trying to hit this mug, this is dead on balls accurate. Every 50 meters you're off, it deducts from your overall score. Let me ask you a question, too. Is the dive buddy getting graded? No. He's just got to keep up. He's just got to keep up. for the ride. Oh, yeah. he's your toe. Because you can't yep. be down there alone. Yeah. I mean, he has a job. He's, no, really, no, no, he's no, protecting but... you from swimming into something. Sure. my face is in a compass. Sure. But he's not being evaluated at all. Okay. So you got to make it in a certain amount of time. And every 20, 25, 50 meters off your point you are, it deducts from your overall score combination of time and accuracy we splash and i'm like hey dude i need you to i need you to go all out here he's like i got you bro i'll go yeah. as fast as i can we take off we're going he's usually when you're diving it's it's all your legs mm -hmm. your arms don't really do much for you he's right. like breaststroking and he's just full <laughs> yeah. body just going just boom, 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 yeah. just giving everything he has i can look back i see him trying i'm like i don't know where i'm going to end up yeah. no idea my first time really using this new setup and uh, 
you know, I start coming up to the surface. I see the water getting shallow. I pop up and I am dead on accurate on the sign. And I'm the Holy first one that shit. finished yeah, out, of the, out of the class. No shit. My dad buddy's exhausted. I was just getting ready to ask. Yeah. How is Does he? he have to test the next he day? He has to test right after. Right after. <laughs> yeah. That's he has to test dude. right after. Are you, you're going to be then his dive buddy. Yeah. So you had to slow the hell down though, right? I, just, next I was just chilling when he was going. Yeah, I was right? going to say. Yeah. yeah. I was just, I was just chilling. So, wow. Yeah. And it, you know, I hit that sign. I come up and all the cadre are right there, including the one that I was dragging across the bottom of the ocean. And they're all like all kinds of fired up. Cause that was, that's really the last graded assessment yeah. of the course. So once I passed that, you were good. I was, I was essentially good barring something crazy happening that yeah. I would actually graduate. Wow. That yeah. had to be a pretty major relief. So what it about was. the, yeah. what about the nonprofit? Did you reach back out and say, dude, that like, Saved my ass, right? Oh, yeah. They yeah. were right there. Oh, they were there. They were there when I came to the yeah. shore, and they so were, they're like, pumped up too. They were like jumping up in the <laughs> yeah, air. Yeah, awesome. They were like losing their minds. Like, yeah. yes, you know, we did it. That is it's awesome. a huge milestone for them because they're up to this point, they're doing like recreational stuff. You were a pilot program for oh, yeah. them. For them, it was. Yeah. 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 That's freaking awesome, man. No, this was a great opportunity for them to be able to say, no, we don't just do veterans. Oh, it's a good proof. Excellent proof of yeah. concept. So they threw me on their website and, um, you know, COVID messed up some of their events, but I'll go down, you know, when they do their next one in Key West, I'll go, assuming I can, and, you know, dive with them and yeah. all the other amputees. Huge, and, though. I mean, if there are amputees down there that none of them have even gone through the scuba course, everybody pretty much knows about the course. Yeah. So when they learn that you went through it, powerful, you know, great message. Yeah, I'd like to think so. Yeah. Yeah. No. It kind of somewhat <laughs> screws my newer teammates. I had a, we had a new medic that joined the team and he was going to dive school right after I, the next class after me. Yeah. And I sat him down and I said, Hey man, listen, no bullshit. Me having just graduated this course, does that, is that positive for you? Are you, are you looking at this? Like he yeah. did it so I can do it kind of thing. And you're excited or does it just stack in on pressure? Because if you fail, right. The one legged guy made it and yes. didn't. Like, which one is it? And yeah. he's like, it's just way more pressure. Yeah. I'm like, fuck. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about oh. that, man. Because <laughs> they bring it up at every class. Oh, I can only imagine. Badger, you know, oh, when sure. dudes are like hanging their head and they're like, you know, about to ring the bell. They're like, yeah. you know, a one-legged guy just passed this course like last year. Are you really going to yeah. quit? And like, they, so they throw it in their face yeah. all the time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It's pretty funny. They don't have a poster of you outside? Sitting there, it's in one of the classrooms. Statue? Oh, do they really? Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. yeah, that's very very cool. Yeah. yeah. So that was when you went through the course. I was last. Yeah, I was last year. Oh. I graduated in June. Wow. Twenty twenty. Yeah. Okay. Oh, congratulations, man. Thanks. That's awesome. You know, it, it's like I was the first to do it, man. Yeah. And that's cool. And you know, paving the way for the next guy or gal is all groovy and great stuff, and it's an honor. But really, man, it was a professional requirement on being on a dive team. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the only reason why I went. Yeah. You know what I mean? I took it on as a personal challenge and as that sure. next ridge line and yeah. you know all that stuff. But it was like you're on a dive team, you gotta be a combat diver. Yeah. That's yeah. it. You know well, I mean? but I mean you kind of go into things obviously with fire is not an option either. It's not. You know, I guess my point is is I'm I was I'm not motivated to be the first at stuff. You didn't seek this out. I did, you know, I did. It was because a requirement was, of your job. That's it. You know, it wasn't like, what's the hardest school and I'm going to go prove I can do this. Right. It was, this just came up in the course of your career and you rose to the occasion. That was it, man. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, Which I, is, I think it's an important distinction to make. There's a lot of people out there that, you know, they put their ego first and they're like, well, I, I just want to prove that I can do this for me. And it sounds like that's never really been, I mean, obviously you do, you're doing it for you too, but yeah, it's as a requirement of your job. Yeah. That's what's mission dictated. That was it. You know, I'm, yeah. I don't see myself as any different than any other SF guy or any other soldier. It's like, you're on a dive team as a leader, right? Yeah. As a warrant, as the warrant, how can I possibly lead a bunch of combat divers without having gone through yeah. that same filter? Because yeah. that's really what makes dive, te dive teams great. Dive teams are notoriously awesome teams. Right. And the separation is dive school. Right. It has nothing to do with diving or the actual capability of subsurface infiltration it's or maritime operations. It's you all survived that one thing. It's you all went through a six week hell. You yeah. demonstrated you are willing to literally die for the mission and or for your dive buddy. And you take yeah. 12 dudes that have done that and put them on the same team. Right. It's just another filter within a filter within a filter. So how could I do that job as a leader without having gone through that? Yeah. I looked at that as a, as a non-option. Yeah. Which, so I mean, it just became the next, the next mission. You know, no, you got to share hardship. Absolutely. Have to. Have, Have to. to. Have to. So you pinned on warrant when? We said 2019. 19. So you're 15, 14 years in now? Yeah, a little over 14. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you said five years is typically for a warrant. It is. Yeah, which would give me another two and a half or so. Um, what would you have to do then? After? Yeah, in order to, to stay to 20. My last few years will, I'll, I'll remain in ops, but it'll be in either a managerial role or in one of our kind of specialized sections that focuses on like a very niche aspect of, of what we do. Mm -hmm. At that point, it really won't matter too much to me. Like yeah. I, I'm doing the only thing I want to do. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not looking at it so pessimistic as I used to. Right. You know, like to be able to open up the sphere of influence wider entices me. Whereas three years ago, if you told me I was doing anything but being on a team, I'd like want to throw up. But right. It's, yeah. it's just, it's just part of the process, man. You can't do this stuff forever. Yeah. My body has definitely taken a toll, you know, the last almost nine years doing this on one leg, the compensation, that my body has gone through, yeah. um, you know, it takes its toll. So I'm getting a little older, a little longer in the tooth. You know, I got two young yeah. boys, so I want to be able to enjoy life with them upright. Right. And, you know, you can only go hot in the paint for, for so long. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just, I'm getting to that point where I'm more accepting of what that next chapter looks like. And, you know, part of me is almost kind of looking forward to it. Yeah. I'm going to enjoy the time I have now with the boys. Nothing will ever replace that. But, it'll, you know, it'll come to an end here in the next... 18, 24 months. Uh, fifth group, a lot of people may not know the theater of operations. So what's your, I mean, third, we know Africa. Fifth group covers CENTCOM. Yeah, so Middle East. Yeah. Um, still thinking about the federal agencies? No. No. Not, no, not at all. No. That, uh, yeah, that left my mind a long time ago. Don's heartbroken right now. I mean, <laughs> being, being a federal agent, he's he's... Heartbroken at this moment. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm, I'm often, you know, told, man, I don't know how you do what you do, whether it's because I'm an amputee or not. But I don't know how law enforcement officers, federal, state, local, yeah. do that profession in this day and age. Yeah. It's un, 
believable. I got friends and family that are in that in that line of work and just the level of respect I have. Because when we do what we do, I don't have, you know, an iPhone streaming live in my right. face from every single person around me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not wearing a camera that's also streaming live with every action I take, right? Yeah. Like we've got a lot more gray area to make decisions and or mistakes and get past them. Whereas yeah. Yeah. the law enforcement community, literally, I'm preaching to the choir, I know, I'm sorry, but one wrong word, or done. The right word taken out of context. The right action taken <laughs> out of context. I mean, if you go frame by frame, you can make something look like anything that you want. Yeah. There, li- life after the army. I mean, don't don't write it off just yet. I mean, y- you never know. You do never know. Yeah. I will leave room yeah. for the unknown. Um, but I do feel like I kind of know what my next purpose is. Um, you know, continued life of service just in a different, you know, conduit through a different mechanism. What are you thinking? Writing, speaking, consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, my first book is done. It'll nice. be out next month. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah. What's it called? Objective Secure. Okay. Yeah. And the quick, the quick story on it is I started getting reached out messages, emails from new amputees, other mm-hmm. service members asking the same question. Like, how did you do what you did? Because here's my circumstance. Yeah. And after just answering the same question so often, I'm like, I'm just gonna document this process. I'm just gonna create like a little manual, 20, 25 pages, just a quick guide. Like this is literally how I did what I did. So when this question comes in, it's just attach, send, here you go, man, take it and run. So really it was on efficiency, Yeah. which I did that, you know, documented it. It was like 25 pages in a Word doc. And then COVID hits early 2020. I got all this time on my hands because even us were working remotely a bunch, which was right. weird, yeah. right? And my good buddy, we've been best friends 20 some odd years. His mother's in the book industry. He's like, hey man, why haven't you written a book yet? And I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh I kind of wrote this guide. He's like, yeah, keep writing because like there's something there. Mm-hmm. And I had all this time, I had this bandwidth. So I just kept writing. I was looking back in my journal. I was adding more stuff to it. And I kind of, I got real dialed in to this and I was 500 words a day. And next yeah. thing you know, I'm at, you know, 67,000 words and it's like a real book. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, it still very much is, is a manual. It's not an autobiography. It's not like the Nick Lavery yeah. story or whatever. It's a guide that really just outlines the mindset and the strategy that I employed and learned throughout the process of getting back to the team and, and moving forward and, and continuing to do what I do with just enough vignettes and personal experiences built in there to kind of right. give all the tenants some context and some credibility. So, sure. um, and it turns out I actually really enjoy writing, which yeah. like who you knew tapped that into was your thing. artistic side. I know, man, I go back and try to learn Russian. This time. Yeah. Oh, but that's really cool. And so on the speaking side of things, um, that's kind of where you want to go then is be more of a motivational or, you know, speaker. I really dislike the term motivational speaker. You know, I do know that when I engage with an audience, they're likely going to be motivated Mm -hmm. or inspired. But I look at that as a byproduct, really. Mm -hmm. That's not my intent. My intent is to is to teach and to pass along some wisdom and some lessons learned, mostly through the mistakes that I've made. Yeah, and which is what you do, SF. That's what teach. we do in SF, right? So, like, it's 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 basically what I'm doing now, just yeah. you know, minus the bullets and the bombs and the guns and the team life. 
um, provide a service that's tangible that a person or audience can take away and also excited and motivated and ready to run through a brick wall. But I don't look at that as, as the intent, as the purpose. Sounds like a resume for Mentors Military Podcast to me. I don't know. I mean, like, that's the reason why we started this was uh, was me and Rudy, uh, former warrant officer, third group. And, you know, it was around that very same thing. It was, how can we figure out a way, service, give back? I mean, everything you just nailed. He was, he was, he was a teacher. That's what his kind of profession was. And then he was also, you know, sniper, shoot you in the face, sure. you know. So every, every episode at that point in the very beginning was, you know, yeah, I shoot him in the face. You know? <laughs> but, you know, it was also um, really cool because there was a lot of lessons. And that's what we found is that through communication, you know, I mentioned off air about that, you know, part of the show is that through just natural communication, through teaching, you're motivating, you're inspiring, you're sharing your story or whatever. Um, it's, it's just going to be coming out natural. It's obviously very natural. I mean, just through this episode. So... Yeah. Appreciate yeah. that. No, it's cool. It's uh, I'm, I'm fortunate to have found myself into a current profession and lifestyle that I'm passionate about and I feel is my purpose and equally fortunate to where I feel like I've identified what that next one looks like. Yeah. You know, a lot of guys, they identify so strongly with military service and that's it's, it's, it's expected to a degree. Yeah. Right? It consumes a lot of you. <clears throat> that that transition process is really challenging. And I know you and I talked about this earlier. You know, what is that next thing? And a lot of service members have a tough time identifying it and then moving in that direction. And yep. um, so I'm, I'm blessed to have already figured out kind of what that is. But you're also going into something that fits very natural again. I mean, like uh, one of the hosts that we have on the show here is a former CSM at 10 Special Forces Group, Pat Tillman Scholar, also now a football coach at a high school leading young men, and also at the same time frame teaching history, which is his favorite uh, subject. So, I mean, he just took his military experience of being a teacher in teams and applied that to being a teacher. Let me get my education, my cert uh, teaching certification, so I can do that. And, oh, by the way, I love sports, and I want to be, you know, remain fit, so I'm going to teach young men football yeah. and, and be a coach. Uh, they're undefeated, uh, finished the season, I think, state champs or something. But... They, uh, it's just, you know, continuing that same thing they're very comfortable with. And we talk about this on the show a lot, that that's what you got to do. You got to find those things that, um, you're passionate about that can add value and that you can continue being the best at where that intersects. That's, that's it. That's the sweet spot. Boom. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, actually there's a book by Jim Collins where he calls that, uh, and is good to great, uh, the hedgehog concept. Hmm. And uh, businesses, for applying bu uh, businesses, for those businesses that went from being not just good, but being great. What was the things that caused good companies to become great companies? What he found was that the leaders that were there understood that, um, like commander's intent that we understand, you get the right people on the bus. You don't define what the, the vision is necessarily. You get the right people on the bus. And then you, you develop the vision, mm. you know, the strategy and everything that needs to go there. And then secondly, what are we passionate about? What can we add value? What can we be the best in the world at? And those things become easier yeah. at that point on. If we applied those same principles to our everyday life, you know, mm. we, we could then figure out what our, our true passion is, where we should go, yeah. how we could, uh, could supply our past experiences in order to move forward. We just don't think about those types of ways 
of applying our military experience. And we talked about this before you got here in that type of way. But we should. It's what we know. Yeah. You know, just so, apply it to a different way now. It's almost too obvious. Yeah. yeah. It is. And so, I mean, I can see you doing that type of stuff in corporate America as well. Uh, I guess is what I'm saying. So yeah. outside of just, you know, um, the ways that you might be thinking about. But there are a lot of companies out there that could use um, that type of understanding and basic drawing a picture of understanding where a company needs to go, why leadership needs to think this way, yeah. you know, those types of things yeah. that take your experiences on, on service. Yeah, I got an engagement actually tomorrow with a oh. software and business solutions company. There you go. Right. So Somebody has obviously picked up on that. Yeah, and I'm talking to like 50 sales reps. But it, a lot of that it transfers through all sectors. It does. Right, like what are we really talking about? Work yep. ethic, dedication, discipline, team yep. play, yep. consistency, yeah. right? Like yep. just through the narrative and the <clears throat> conduit of military service, right? But it exists in corporate, private, education. Everything. I know, mean, if you athletics. even think back to like, I was going to say, athletics, yeah. football. Even if you go all the way back, you know, you're strategizing, but you're trying to get the right people on the bus. You're trying to think about how we can apply their individual talents and skills and stuff to accomplish the same mission, the same goal. I mean, these are all the same things we're doing through the assessment and getting the people on the right teams and putting them in the right places. We can leverage their strengths. It's the same thing all the way in life. Yeah. Nothing sure. changes there, but man, I wish you best of luck in everything, not just the rest of your military career, but the things that you're already generating on the outside at this moment. You're building a foundational um, basis here, but you're also building a strong network on the outside that'll be able to catapult you further. Wish you best of luck on your book. Thanks, man. Uh, most importantly, yeah. Uh, so it's gonna it's gonna come out next month. I think it's gonna be going live, meaning available for for sale like mid December, and then we'll launch it the first week of January nice. and really hammer that New Year's resolutions crowd. So this episode, we'll probably, we'll schedule it to drop around that time frame cool. so that we can coincide it, yeah, Perfect. with that. Yeah, yeah. get your guys cool. copies. Yeah, appreciate awesome. you coming awesome. on the show. Yeah. No, man, it was good to spend some time. How, how long did we just go? Uh, we just went two hours and 37 minutes. Crazy how fast it goes. Yeah. 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 But this stuff, is man. what's so great about just getting a bunch of guys together. And obviously, if we just had our favorite adult beverage right now, we just keep going. <laughs> yeah, here all night for sure. <laughs> Things would get real weird real quick. Yeah. <laughs> thank God the video died. <laughs> right. So, anyway, Nick, cool, thank you so much, man, for coming all this way and being on the show. No, I appreciate yeah. you guys having me. Good time. Definitely.